Hello, everybody. My name is Thomas Fracken, and this is the Roundtable Chats podcast, a platform where ideas are challenged and the life stories of extraordinary people from around the globe are explored, one conversation at a time. Today, my guest is Zeke Sky. Zeke is a gifted musician whose album Animals of God and War was released this year on iTunes and Spotify, which has been listened to by people all over the world. I was blown away by his song of Gods and War, which I'll play shortly, and highly recommend giving his music a listen. Zeke, like myself, is an orthogonal thinker with a deep background in philosophy, which made for a truly insightful and refreshing conversation on many important topics. This is quite a long episode, but it was necessary because if you carefully meditate on the ideas we explore in depth, the way you see the world may expand in surprising directions. Uh, quick disclaimer, if you're in favor of deep platforming controversial speakers or think free speech should have certain restrictions, um, you might have a negative emotional reaction to the first hour of our conversation. Um, so I just wanted to give you a heads up. For my listeners, however, who are interested in hearing a truly novel perspective and a new take on Trump, totalitarianism, postmodernism, and the potential differences between men and women, this is the conversation for you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, here is Zeke Scott. Zeke, welcome to the round table. How are you today? I'm um, great, Thomas. Good to be with you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I just to begin, uh, before we dive in, I just wanted to thank you personally for um, taking kind of control and being a moderator on the Roundtable Chats Facebook page and adding your fans. And um, it's really grown my podcast since then. Uh, for my listeners, if you heard episode 12 with Yoho, the Finnish uh, scientist slash engineer, I would not have even met this guy if it wasn't for Zeke uh, adding his fans because he was a mutual friend of me and Zeke. So I just wanted to thank you personally for, for doing that. You're welcome. I'm happy to contribute to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So to begin, how I always start these interviews is uh, what are you grateful for? Uh, yeah, so I guess th there are lots of material things I could point to, like family and friends and stuff like that. But really, when I, when I think about all that stuff, I think what I'm most grateful for is just the opportunity mm. to have all those things, just being born into the world and being given a family and being given, you know, the chance to be involved with music, to be involved, um, you know, with teaching music, with playing music. And uh, maybe just to be like more specific, the specific conditions that I, you know, kind of came into, which was, you know, living in America mm -hmm. in a time that is very peaceful and prosperous and uh, just the continued effort that I see on the part of people all over the planet that I see on you know, Facebook, YouTube, all over the place to right. better themselves. Yeah. yeah. Themselves. It's a very inspiring time to live in. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because um, that's also something I'm very grateful for and something that I think people our age or in our generation. Are, are you a millennial? Like when were you born? Just so quick. I was born uh, in 1990. Okay. Yeah. So I think you technically fit um, into the millennial generation. I think. I don't know where the cutoff Close. is. Close. Yeah. But regardless, people who are born in first world countries in the 21st century, like living in the 21st century, it's the amount of opportunity, the amount, the ability to collaborate has never been easier. Um, if you're listening to this now, I can safely assume that you either have a laptop or an iPhone. Um and what you can do with that technology, um, essentially, is just nothing short of miraculous. Um, I mean, just a quick example, I'm close to a one-year anniversary of, of a girl I'm close friends with who I met through Tinder making a mistake. The algorithm made a mistake. I was in D.C., she was in D.C., but then I moved back home to Boulder. And when I was using Tinder for Boulder, I was still matching with girls from D.C. And because of that mistake, me and her met. She's from the Philippines. She's living in the Philippines right now. She's gonna move to Europe to do a master's. She keeps telling me to wait for her. But um, we've been talking on Facebook for the longest of time, right? Like a year now, probably the yeah. longest uh, friendship of that sort I've had. And that would not have been possible if I was living in any other century. So, you know, I, I'm totally with you there. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting also because the the way that technology has changed our life is, I mean, I just got to say it's directly proportional to the infrastructural changes that have happened mm. since the Enlightenment, wow. before the Enlightenment, stuff that was even going on before then. but. One of the important things to remember is even in the absence of technology like Facebook and stuff like that, it's important to know that this is the last stream of things that have happened in the last 20 years. But before that, we started, you know, we had invented airplanes. Right. It's easy to overlook. I mean, world travel became possible, mm. you know, not that long ago, but way, way before the Internet. Yeah. Uh, so humanity has been intermingling in a way that um, is not necessarily um, – it's a positive thing. It's a group. It's a totally a positive thing. But we're still getting used to. Uh, we're still getting our footing 
for the uh, specific environment of this kind of interconnectivity. Right. Which it, which is, it's very easy to see that there are, there's, I wouldn't even call it a silver lining because there's really no, hmm. I don't see a negative part of it. Hmm. But you do see that it takes a toll on some people. Yes. Some people can't use Facebook. Right. Some people can't deal with the interconnectivity and hmm. the ability to be able to, you know, contact anyone in their life all the time because yeah well i have a number of reasons i think that but yeah (laughs) no great point um i think there is a dark side but the dark side isn't the technology itself it's just our failure to adapt to it or or some humans failure to adjust so and that would just take time but uh for instance there is this really illuminating harvard medical study that showed uh, there's a direct correlation, not causation, but correlation between how long you spend on Facebook and how depressed you feel. And it was very thought-provoking because it's like, well, is it that you're spending so much time on Facebook and you're comparing yourself to others, then you feel shitty and that makes you feel worse and ruminate? Or is it somebody who's already clinically depressed it gravitates towards looking at Facebook and ruminating and it, it rewards that? So it's unclear the causality, but it's still interesting. And I can actually speak from personal experience on this. I have type one bipolar disorder so essentially half the time i have mania where i get all these creative ideas and i'm super productive and i want to talk to everyone and i'm everyone's best friend and i I just love humanity and then the other half i'm like severely depressed totally withdrawn stay in bed all day hate humanity and what do i do i look at facebook and just mindlessly scroll and i know that i'm doing this and i know i'm doing this because i'm depressed but i still do it anyways so i'm really fascinated by that research um it's really interesting um, yeah. It seems like it's a bit of a tick for you. Yeah. It's like a, uh, like an involuntary <laughs> mm-hmm. twitching type mechanism, which I've felt before. Mm. And I, I feel like I feel this kind of exact same – I don't even know how to explain it. I guess maybe sometimes being in malls, although it's harder to get to a mall. Like you have to really decide you're going to a mall to be in a mall. <laughs> yes. All I have to do to find out who my high, like my high school girlfriend married. Oh God! In, you it's know, so in, easy. Uh, in like oh. Mexico, in some beautiful. All I have to do is open my phone. Ugh, but, it's too uh, easy. Yeah. I, I feel that kind of in malls. And have you ever had like road rage? <laughs> um, personally, a little bit, but I know it's very common. Yeah. <laughs> road rage is like even legally, we kind of uh, take it as this thing of okay, your mind is just not in its normal place right now. We have other things like you, right. know, you can kill sure. someone who's you know sleeping with your wife and you're gonna get manslaughter but right. i mean it's when you see these people getting into these wars on twitter and facebook yes you see it's this very venal type of it's this very special case of aggression it that is. would not probably occur no. in any other no situation besides maybe road rage right. any other one I mentioned yeah and the difference i guess is with road rage i mean they're both have really heavy consequences right if you looked at the data but What makes the social media example uh, special is that you can be, you can plant seeds. I would say you could actually do more harm through these online battles psychologically, right, than than the road rage. The road rage, you might, worst case scenario, kill someone, and that's horrible. But through online, you could, like, really have just shit on someone's heart. You could really have them question their entire identity. I mean, cyberbullying is a very severe problem, I think. Um, And, yeah, it's very easy to do. So when you say cyberbullying, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm very interested in actually what you just said. But, yes, please. Uh, I'm going to come at it from a couple of places. One of the things I'm going to say about that is that I think bullying is a very complicated yes. thing. I think that, and I know that like this is like the pretext to like where I, every single person listening to this who maybe <laughs> likes guitar playing, <laughs> kind of loses me a little bit. 
but I, I was bullied a lot as a kid, mm, like same. a lot. Yeah. I ended up in the hospital a couple wow. of times. No, I'm really sorry to get that. Um, I feel that to the extent that it didn't kill me, it made me stronger. Yeah, sure. And I think that in on Facebook, we get this very special, almost uh, biodome effect of it, uh, which is where you get exposed to a lot of it really, really quickly, potentially from people that you wouldn't otherwise interact with. Yeah. So like I have a public Facebook profile, mm-hmm. for example, I don't know if you do, but I do. Yeah. So any do. random person mm-hmm. who I've never yep. known, <laughs> don't have any reason, you know, who right. just found my guitar playing or something yeah. can just come and say some ridiculous thing to me. Right. And it is certainly a great exercise. For me <laughs> to be exposed. I mean, you have to, you have to be bombarded by this stuff. And I wonder how I would have turned out differently if I had just lived in the countryside my whole mm. life and never had my beliefs tried. Oh, that's know? interesting. Yeah, not being tested. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I had the luxury to go to college and have lots of, you know, I remember, I remember all kinds of times where I had some professors who made a point of me because I was, I was always raising my hand and I always yeah, wanted to say something. You're a little bit. A couple yeah. of my professors, you know, made a point of, you know, he's, this is kind of foolish, but um, I think that it's important that we expose ourselves to these things that we perceive as negative. And especially if you, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not a super experienced meditator. I think I've, I've spoken about this before. I've been practicing meditation. But one thing that happens when you practice mindfulness and meditation is that you can slowly start to, you, you can personify your the negative thoughts mm, that yes. are already occurring in here. And when one comes in, maybe it's in the form of criticism or someone or uh, insults or you or something yeah, like that. Right. I think 10 years ago, maybe I, I, I looked at that kind of stuff as like an attack. Now I kind of, I, my mind's eye smiles at those yeah. things. Oh, yeah. You got hey, you're back here. Yeah. What's going on today, man? Yeah, Almost yeah. like the, some like unthreatening, right. any other unthreatening force that I would see you know, some fat, ugly dude hits on my girlfriend or something. I'm going to be. <laughs> this is interesting. Boy. Yeah. What do you want? What are we trying to prove here? What's going on? Yeah. 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 So you have this curiosity to you. Yeah. No. So on that. Okay. There's a lot I can work with there or contribute, but something I've uh, been practicing recently um, is when I'm on an online fight, it's not really that big of a fight, but a debate, let's say that we're on an online debate on some topic. So for instance, there's one example that comes to mind very recently. Yeah, I was being a bit provocative, but it was more from an experimental uh, perspective. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody or offend anybody, but I knew it would. I posted uh, Majid Nawaz. I don't know if you know him, you know, friends. With- I saw that. Yeah, I know Majid. Yeah, so he, he made a post about International Men's Day. I don't even know this is a thing. I have no dog in this fight. I could care less whether he's an International Men's Day or not. And then he had a lot of statistics, and I just wanted to share it. And I, I had a hypothesis, and I kind of stated it when I published this post. And basically all I said was, I expect to get backlash from this. I don't know if I will, but I expect it. And I think even by saying that, I got less backlash because if somebody read that, right, they're gonna, it's going to change how they think a little bit. So it's almost like a psychological trick. But, but one of my friends uh, who's, who's, who I met through the philosophy club or whatever at University of Amsterdam, even though I don't, I don't study philosophy, I'm just fascinated. And he did a very, I think, thorough, I disagreed with him. We had a good, productive, actually, argument online in comment section, which is rare. But he did a very thorough line by line going through all the statistics and what he thought was uh, misleading or hyperbolic or whatever. And I might totally fair. That, that was not the point of my sharing this post. It was not, t- t- he was not the target audience. And but I'm glad he contributed because I learned some things. But then there's another friend of mine, 
Um, and you know, I, I won't, I won't call her out, but of course if you go on my Facebook, you'll see it. She's very intelligent. We're in the same development economics course. Um, she wants to be a human rights lawyer. I'm sure she will be. I'm sure she'll be very successful and will be better off for it. That being said, in this example, she had a dog in the fight. She's very, I think, invested into the third wave feminism, progressive kind of ideology. And so she kind of saw that as an attack, what I posted, even though I didn't say anything about feminism or women even. Um, just the fact that this exists in International Men's Day, she thinks is wrong. So she attacked me. Um, I forget the specific thing she said, but it was just like... I remember. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did she, she say? Said that you, she said <laughs> that you weren't acknowledging the global patriarchy. Yes. 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 I love that word, patriarchy. Oh, it's a beautiful <laughs> word. Beautiful idea. It's, like, it's a great boogeyman. Yeah. I mean, look, just to clarify a little bit um, for our listeners, I mean, I can't... I'm not a topic. I'm not an expert on the patriarchy. What I will say is, um, sure, I think it has an influence, but... I think you should be critical of anybody who only uses one framework to look at a problem. So if you just look through the framework of people are either oppressed or, or oppressors, or if you look at the framework that men have always been in control and there's this hierarchy and they've always dominated, it's like, yeah, there's truth to that, sure. But there's there's more to the story here. And to say, I think the most interesting thing she said that, it, that it gave me something to think about was that, well, the reason that so many men are committing suicide and, and so forth is toxic masculinity and is the patriarchy. So they're told by other men that you need to bottle up your emotions, not show yourself. And like, I, I, I understand that. And I was personally influenced by that. I'm a very sensitive person. I cry very easily. I do not bottle up my emotions. Guys have given me shit for it. And that is toxic. Okay. But... That to me is not a sufficient explanation for the entire problem. I think there's more to it than that. I think guys, many young men, and this is why I think Jordan Peterson, for instance, is so popular, feel isolated. They feel like nobody gives a shit about them. And to some extent, I don't think people do. Um, and that can be debated, but I just, you know, this is a messy problem. It's complex. I think that's what I said during the post is that this is a complex problem. This is not a good medium for it. I'd rather debate her on this podcast or one-on-one -on -one in, in, in real life but it's it's messy so i'm curious what your thoughts are though as an observer to this event um i think that this is actually something i talk about a lot i i see it, it, it somewhat as a version of your seeing that truth must be examined between multiple lenses right. uh but i actually I think it's actually bigger than that. Mm. It's just that truth is interdisciplinary by its nature. Yes, I okay, get so, very good. Yeah. So that that if you take that in itself and you look at it on its face, actually that tells us something potentially disturbing about truth. It just might mean that most people don't have access to it, mm. which is kind of kind of a hard premise to really wrap your mind around right. because it makes it really hard to have the conversation. Sure. I mean, it, it, like if I'm speaking to a geologist, for example, and he has something to say about how the rock cycle, uh, you know, affects uh, ecosystems in a specific way, mm -hmm. I might know a thing or two about that, but I would, in most cases, kind of defer to his judgment. Um, that's kind of like uh, the most specific way I can think of having a direct conversation about something that is maybe super objective. But when it comes to stuff like you know, maybe the issues between men and women, you're invoking biology, you're invoking history, you're invoking right, there's so many. It just elements, so, I mean, yeah. I can go on and on and on. Right. And these things themselves are even tainted with the lack of mm. maybe interdisciplinary individuals that came to define those. Right. So I'm, I'm always very inclined to think that 
you know, there's not going to be, um, and that's part of the reason it's difficult to have a, a productive conversation on Facebook. Yeah. You're just getting everybody. You're getting everyone who's, you know, had its X, Y, and Z experience and factors it in. Now back to what you were saying about mm. the actual content of that yep. disagreement and Jordan Peterson and stuff like that. And all that, yeah. <laughs> I think that a guy like Jordan Peterson is having the, uh, you know, his hay in the sun right, his day in the sun right now. Yeah. For kind of a different reason, I don't think it has anything to do with male loneliness mm. specifically. I think it has to do with the way the opposition has framed yes. Yes. the 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 dichotomy between men and women. Mm. And one of the reasons it's frame it, this framing has caused such a backlash right. is because there are multiple viewpoints on. If we're going to talk about men and women, yeah. there are multiple viewpoints from the extreme side of like kind of men need to be kind of subjugated because they've dominated history. There are right. li lots of different definitions of that. Yes. I mean, you'll talk to you'll talk to people who are evolutionary biologists who mm. will say that th there are certain differences between the sexes sexes that are non extinguishable. Mm -hmm. You'll talk to people with maybe more of a perspective on. Uh, anthropology who will tell you that there are certain cultures that have gotten past those things and maybe there will be some agreement in those ways. What I think actually is the issue is that there's no significant message mm. coming from the side of feminists that is wholly augmented towards a male viewership that will understand the needs and wants of women. Yeah. Right. And I think part of the part of the reason for that is you can't really have a collective vision like that. Mm. Not all women think the same way. Not yeah, all women want not. the same things. Right. Yeah. So it would almost be bizarre for <laughs> yeah. anyone to be speaking for a large population of women. Yes, um, I agree. That being said, we should acknowledge that in the last hundred years, extraordinary progress mm. and change has happened um, and it's important to pat ourselves on the back for the changes that have happened and for right. the fact that, you know, we've gotten that, yeah. to a new place, but we also need to examine why we were in the place we were in before. Mm, yes, yes. That's it's very not strange. enough to just pat ourselves on the back and just no. kind of move forward and mm. say, you know, what, we, women have these things now, or even, you know, African-Americans, you know, have these certain things now. Why were things like this before? What is the foundation and the yes. framework? Mm that contributed to that. Right, yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of people do not want to think about. Maybe it makes them very uncomfortable, you know? Well, it's scary. Yes, it is. It's scary. At the most extreme, right? Um, if you, I'm, I'm really gonna go there. If you look at Hitler's appeal, um, you know, this is something that I've studied a bit and I, I actually want to read more deeply his writing. It, it makes people uncomfortable that I remember, like, if I say, like, Hitler was a great order, some people can get very offended by that. But it's like, how else could he be so horrible? I, I, I have Jewish. Well, he was a great what? Oh, great order. Great speaker. Oh, yeah. I feel even further than that. Yeah. So oh, no, sure. I'm just, I'm just starting. But I'm just saying, like, even that itself, right? People... Some people get super offended and they're like, that's really disrespectful. I'm like, no, that's understanding the situation. And the, the problem isn't even that Hitler existed. I, I have a big issue when people say like, oh, I'll go back in time and kill Hitler or would you kill Hitler when he's a baby? I'm like, you're missing the point here. We shouldn't be afraid of someone like Hitler. We should be afraid that the masses would follow someone like Hitler, you know, and that he was appealing to them somehow it actually ties back to trump i'm not equating the two i hate when people do that because it just downplays 
Hitler's impact. I think Hitler would be offended if he was compared to Trump. But with Trump, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, really? <laughs> like, I actually worked hard. I actually wrote fucking books, you know? <laughs> I didn't have someone else write them for me. But with Trump, like, he I is... read a book or two. Yeah, too. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hitler, I mean, Trump said that he's proud to not read books. It's great. That's just what I want in a leader. But yeah. the point is, like, I'm not going to just bash Trump this whole time. I'm saying, like, he is appealing to an emotion when he became president in 2016. And I'm afraid he will be reelected for the record in 2020. Oh, you so, haven't seen the news today then, have no, you? No, I haven't. What was the news today? I just, uh, well, I've been I ignorant it's, today. It's been boiling for a while, but Mueller seems to be circling a little bit more closely. Ah, well, that's good. If in that case, that's good. I don't know. It needs to happen. Go go back to what you were saying. Yeah. So it needs to happen because here's my concern. I don't think anything's been uh, learned by liberals and I identify as a liberal myself. I don't think anything's been learned from the liberal party about how Trump got elected in 2016. I see a lot of kind of doubling down, putting your heels in. We're going to fight fire with fire. Um, Like I remember Michelle Obama had this great quote saying, when they go low, we'll go high. And I really resonated with that emotionally. But now I see all these progressives saying, no, we're going to go low. And it's too, we tried going high and that didn't work. And I'm like, no, you did not. I have not seen any uh, decorum given to Trump supporters. I haven't heard any class or, or kindness or compassion come from the left when Trump won. And it, they might say, well, Thomas, we lost. Why should we be compassionate? I'm like, yeah, you know, that's your life. You don't have to be compassionate. But when you put yourself in the shoes, if you practice empathy with who voted for Trump in 2016, and if you look at certain case studies, for instance, when somebody voted for Barack Obama twice and then voted for Trump, that's really interesting. That's really bizarre. Or 53% of women voted for Trump. That's really interesting, you know? Uh, so maybe part of that is just, uh, right, you could say, oh, the patriarchy and traditionalism, and they're just following what their husband said. Okay, but that doesn't explain all of them. We, we really need to hear, listen to the voices of those who are not racist, they're not sexist, they're educated, they're intelligent, and they voted for Trump. Because obviously he said something that clicked or Hillary said something that did not. And I, I don't know, but if you don't talk to them, if you deplatform people and silence people, how are we supposed to move forward? You know? So that's my concern. Well, so there's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a rant. Well, let's start off with, with Hit, what we were saying about oh, Hitler. Yeah. And I, I think you actually bring up a good point, which is that there is a certain mechanism and it's existed long before social media. This is a, this is a thing we feel very significantly as humans. When you even just say the word Hitler, mm. it has a Voldemort presence to it. It does. And it does. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to coin this right now. It's the Voldemort effect. Yeah. When you, you even, sure? the, the ability to have an objective discussion about that is immediately limited by the impact that Hitler had. It's mm. immediately curtailed by his name is just such a big force and thing in all of it our really minds is. at this point One of the that biggest, it's yeah. almost impossible. It, it takes a little bit. It takes a bit of a meditation with yourself to really have just an objective conversation about the guy. True. Um, True. And I think that you make an. There's actually a book called Hitler's Willing Executioners. Um, mm. I forget who wrote it, but yeah, I've heard of that it, book. Yeah. It unfortunately makes the point that you make that Hitler was able to. Uh, almost demonically move masses of people to kill other people. Yeah. And if you, you can, there are all of these um, pictures. I, I saw a set of pictures. It was, you, I, I forget where I saw it. It was in some, uh, some gallery from uh, Reddit or something like that. And it was these nice pictures. It was these men, they were drinking water and 
just hanging out and having a nice time. Oh, I found it. I remember I found it because uh, some a guy, Sam Harris, was interviewing. These beautiful pictures of these guys enjoying a nice evening day yeah. or just daytime. And it was revealed at the end of the pictures that these were people who were killing Jews in World War II. Mm. These looked like the very yeah. nice right. guys. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. And I think there is something about that that is just so – um, telling about the human condition, about the, yes. the manipulable nature of the human condition, and right. for um, people to seem to really feel like maybe they're not doing the wrong thing when they really are. Mm. So, the manipulation of the masses that way to me is just a phenomenon that I, I, I don't have my head around completely, but sure. I completely I think it, it was very much in, in play here. Um, and just a last point on Hitler we should actually completely acknowledge the man's skills because yes. we will not be able to resist the next Hitler if we don't understand the characteristics of someone like Hitler. Correct. Um, mm. I think that one of the ways you see this is, could you have imagined anyone uh, coming after Hitler? I mean, what if his, his, his dream of a thousand-year Reich was even partially realized? Can you imagine anyone like coming after him for Germany in, the, in, the, in a real sense, yeah. I mean, I don't even know who it would be. Maybe just like some admiral to go sign the peace treaty, but would have filled the void of a guy like him. Um, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, <laughs> it, it, the Third Reich was so completely ingrained in Hitler and his yes. own vision that it's almost weird to call it the Third Reich or anything besides Hitler's party. Right. You know? yeah. um, now, as far as Trump goes and uh, people who voted for Barack Obama and then Trump, I think there's a lot of things that are in play with Donald yes. Trump getting elected. Mm -hmm. One thing that I wouldn't completely look past, though, is Barack Obama. And mm -hmm. I hate to paint the um, American populace as racist. I, I don't like generalizing about Same. race. Yeah. But don't you find it a little bit interesting that we elected our first black president ever mm -hmm. for two consecutive yes. terms? Yeah. He was very well loved by the public, and then mm. a blonde white—the <laughs> most white guy, yeah, champion, most white, so-called champion of industry—comes along, and he gets elected. Yeah, yeah, that's a point. I mean, there are, obviously there would have been other Republicans who could have fulfilled those criteria, mm. but he was almost like the ultimate version of the the the. Uh, if there was positive energy that went into voting for Trump. <laughs> or went into voting for Obama, yeah. there was a negative energy created for oh, someone absolutely. like Trump. So imagine you dig a hole in the ground <laughs> and you're trying to build a hill out of that hole, right? So yeah. you eventually get to the point where you, you piled up all this mud mm, and it's just yeah. going, it's going, you know, 10 feet up. There's a 10 foot hole now in the yeah. ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That energy has been, both has been displaced, but it's not been destroyed. Mm. Um, so that's kind of part of the way I see the Trump phenomena. Yeah, Another thing that I think is that Trump is actually – I didn't vote for him, but Trump actually represents something very interesting about mm. America. That someone could come to a position of power in a place like this, says that this place is, is filled mm. very much to the brim with people who are living very kind of naive lives and not really – able to see past the veil of materialism mm. and i think actually even though i know that that type of life isn't for me i do think it says that there are a lot of people in this country who actually are very comfortable in their own skins mm. and they um just the fact that i'm gonna say he's he's a parasite of sorts yeah he's certainly some kind of parasite he's very if manipulative he's, if, yeah. if, if he's as bad as a lot of people will tell you he is 
he's made a career out of this. Yes. It's very, I, yeah, that could even be a, a thing that you could make a career out of and eventually become a president. I mean, he's very unique. Good about the that? environment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, 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 a, in a specific sense. In yeah. another sense, he's courted a ton of white supremacist bullshit. Mm-hmm. And sure. you have to, he's, I'm he's trying to think it, yeah. about it from the perspective of a white supremacist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Go well, ahead. From, from the perspective of a white supremacist, if you are really, really a white supremacist, yeah. there are going to be things that Trump's going to say that you're going to say that's too left leaning. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's going to, it's going to be there. Of course, they're going to be but disappointed. For the most part, yeah. you are going to think Donald Trump has said the things that are closest to the rhetoric that you want to hear. I don't think that's deniable. No, I, mean, I would agree with that completely. And I would add, um, right, Charlottesville is a great example of this. Um, what happened a few years ago uh, with Spike Lee's new film, The Black KK Klansman, about how there's a black guy pretending to be a white, uh, uh, white Klansman. And then he, he had a white buddy cop with him who pretended to be him so he could join the group as white. But it was based on a true story. It's really fascinating. Highly recommend seeing the film. But a black guy would do his white man's voice. And he even got talking to, um, you know, one of the most famous Ku Klux Klansmen. What's his name? He's still alive. Uh, Duke or, uh, man, I forget his name. But he even talked to, like, the leading Ku Klux Klan leader and met him. It was like really extraordinary. But at the end of the movie, though, what Spike Lee does, it's so genius to bring it to the present is that he then shows a clip of Charlottesville and he shows a clip of Donald Trump saying there's bad people on both sides. And it's like, yeah, this this issue is not over. Um, And, uh, you know, I would never call Trump necessarily a white supremacist, but he's certainly using them. He's using their support, and he's fine with it, right? And that's almost well, worse in a way. What do you mean by using his support, though? Because well, what I mean is like he sees, okay, here's a group that's obviously not going to vote for the left, so I, I can might as well uh, get them to come and vote. Maybe they didn't vote in the other two elections, right? So, but I it's such know. a small percentage of the population taking the political risk True. to court that. True. Maybe he didn't think it through. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's like if somebody likes him, he'll just accept it. Yeah. I don't think he consciously did that. I don't think that Donald Trump. (laughs) I'm not even completely sure that he's like a real racist. Right. It's 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 a bit messy, but yeah, that's a debate. Right. It's not a. uh, I think he's more of a. If anything, he's just closer to a nihilist. Yeah, yeah, he's just, yeah, yeah. You know, he just mm-hmm. wants to put gold all over everything. So I think I figured him out. I think I figured out Trump. Um, and I figured him out when he, after he got elected, and I realized like, holy shit, people really, really don't understand him. At least all my friends who voted against him and have this hatred against him. So I read his books, right? I went to the source. I read The Art of the Deal, which, by the way, he didn't write it. But if you just open it, you don't have to read it. Just open it. You'll see it's actually the the, the right title would be Donald Trump's Diary because it says 9.30 a.m. I did this. 10.30 a.m. I do this. 11.30 a.m. I do this. 12, and that's like the whole book. I sort of got or at least half of it. I didn't finish it, but I read enough. And it's like if you had the opportunity in the 1930s to read a book that got you inside the mind of Hitler, like when you do that. So that's for me, that's with Trump again, Trump and Hitler, totally different things. But what I mean is I remember holding that book when he got inaugurated and it was really tense. I was in Washington DC, right? 
and I saw but a group of women who were going to do the women's march. And I, I realized when I saw them that I was holding this book, which is like, you know, like the Antichrist, the worst thing. So I quickly try to cover it. You know, I don't want to provoke, but they already see it. Right. Laser eye, eagle focus, Trump book. This guy's a Trump supporter. Da, 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 da. And then we have this whole thing. But I quickly try to neutralize the situation. I'm like, I'm not a Trump supporter. I want to understand the psychology behind Trump. He's our leader now. Yeah, literally put my hands up. Don't kill me. No, they weren't they weren't dangerous, but they were scared, right? They were literally scared by this book. And that's when I realized how massive this issue is. If you're a college student at one at a great university and you're scared by a book, that is a problem. You know, and it could have just been a, a heat of the moment and Trump got inaugurated and I'm being a little hyperbolic, but she was scared of the book. <laughs> so I kind of try to assuage that a bit, but here's something that blows, I think, a lot of liberal minds. If you pick up a copy of The Art of the Deal on the very cover by the New York Times, which is a pretty liberal, I would say, magazine or newspaper, and I like it a lot, they say one of the best business books. Like they love it, like really high praise. So it's actually a good book. And I don't think all liberals want to give any credit to Trump at all. And again, he didn't write it, but it is about his life. It's his mind. So he's very interesting. That's the first thing I noticed. He thinks very differently than most people. Secondly, this book was from 1990. I think something happened to him um, in the late 2000s. I don't know what, maybe, maybe I would love to study his brain. I like neuroscience, right? I think he's got some sort of disease I don't know. It's not a severe one. Of course, he can function, but there's something with this judgment that's just off. Something's just off. Because if you look at videos of him in the late 1880s, 1980s, when he's kind of at the peak of his career in a way and, and actually highly respected, he talked very differently. He thought very differently. He was very careful with his words, uh, tight with his speech, unlike now. And he cared a lot about what people thought about him. And now I think he's he realized he doesn't need to. Um, but something I noticed about him, though, at watching documentaries, I've really studied him, is that, and why I'm, this is actually why I'm terrified of him, is that I hate when people say, oh, Donald Trump is stupid or he's an idiot. It's like, that's giving him power when you say that. That really works for him if you underestimate him. Um, he has made a lot of deals. He has gone bankrupt several times, but he's always rebounded from every bankruptcy and people be like, oh, well, his father is so rich. It's like, yeah, his father was very rich and did give him a lot of money. That's all well-documented, all common knowledge. What people don't realize though, is the strategy Trump took when he was kind of at rock bottom. And he went from real estate where he's mildly successful, but limited to Trump just selling the name, the brand. So this is where you get Trump stakes. This is where you get the Trump apprentice show, the Trump this, the Trump that. He would go to South Korea and they would be building some complex and they say, I don't have a name of what to call this. And Trump being Trump would say, oh, call it Trump. And they would, and he would make money off that. And he would make deals with anybody around the world, regardless of their morals. So he, again, ethically, he's totally, I think, bankrupt, but he's quite clever. And as soon as I saw that that was hit, the way he operated was Trump, Trump, Trump the name, I finally got it. Like, why did he run for president? Why, if you're a billionaire, or at least you have a lot of money, it's unclear his net worth, um, why would you become president? It's one of the hardest jobs, super stressful. Look at Obama from 2008 to 2016, how much he aged in those years, you know? It's a stressful job, if you take it seriously, maybe. But with Trump, I'm like, oh, I figured it out. He just wants attention. He wants his name like Caesar to be remembered for the rest of history. And I think he succeeded because people talk about him every single day. They talked about him every day before he was president. 
And now he's not going to just go down as, I think, as one of the worst presidents, but he's going to be the most controversial president. And no one's going to shut up about him, even after he's out of office. With every future presidential election, they're going to be like, well, at least this guy's not Trump. Uh -huh. And it's like, he likes that. He likes attention. Stop saying his name all the time. You know? It'll really depend. <laughs> you could be right. It'll really depend on how this whole thing ends. Um, yeah. If it does end with him being impeached. Yes. I don't think that that is the legacy that he wished to impart, which would kind of put a little shadow on your theory about mm. his idea of getting into the Oval Office to preserve his name. I'm sure he must have been aware that he was going to incur some legal risks yeah, that he sure. wasn't going to incur otherwise if he attempted True. to become the leader of. But I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not completely close to your idea. I definitely think he's a narcissist who yeah, would pretty well want his name put next to someone like Julius Caesar's, <laughs> yeah. which is, you know, just giving me a good giggle. But yeah, um, for now, we'll see. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that that would be the sole motivation for a guy like him. Mm. Although it sounds yeah. like you, you, you've done a little bit more digging. I don't think that he. Um, enlisted any genius creative capabilities in staying afloat i think there were mm. people who oh, stood sure. to lose a, a lot from team. him just mm. kind of folding completely sure and i think it's hard to say where the line between his genius is and his actual efficiency <laughs> yeah. oh, as yes, a business leader is yes but I, I will say this he's shown a certain kind of um almost efficient spontaneity he has this ability to kind of morph very, very reliably from – I mean this is kind of what makes him an effective politician too. He can morph from view to view. Yeah. He can say – he can look at a crowd of people and say that he didn't say something that he is on camera saying. Oh, yeah. He's very confident. And he yeah. can just completely – if you're looking at his face, you don't detect a lie. You have to go find the video of him saying the thing. Yes. Um, and then he, he says fake news, certain, which was brilliant. I'm because, trying to figure out. Yeah. He has a certain political mobility to him mm. that even Hillary Clinton didn't have. True, I agree. Hillary Clinton has had, I mean, if you think about her, she was against gay marriage in 2008. I know, I'm aware uh, of this. Yeah, she, yeah. And she came out swinging against it a couple times. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just like she got confronted and said, oh, I know. well... Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um... So I, I, I she had a lot of political mobility. It seems like Trump has more. It I seems agree. like he can promise things and not deliver on them, yes. or he can completely promise a new thing and make someone want to now have that thing, which I guess is mm. the salesman in him. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. He's very good at that. I don't, I, I don't think, you know, everything you said about the left before was true. I don't think we're going to see a nuclear war because of Trump. No, I don't think so either. I don't think we're going to see any of the catastrophic things that the left promised, promised was going to happen. And by the way, by promising those things, they set the bar so low for Trump that if those things don't happen, they look foolish. Yeah, I know. And yeah, that's why it, was always, it always should have been more politically salient to attack him on his opinions, yeah. to attack him on his plan as a president, than to attack him as a person. Because some of those attacks just made it more appealing. And yes, and all that I agree with, the thing I would add is – they didn't, and by they I mean the liberals and Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election, they didn't just attack Trump. They also attacked his supporters. And that, yeah, I think, is what lost them the election. So when Hillary Clinton says half of your supporters are deplorables, how do you think they're going to react to that? 
Byron very, very badly. <laughs> and um, yeah. I remember when she made that comment, and this was this was it's one impressive. of the debates, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I can't say. I think for it sure, was but... it was already at the point where a lot of people had made up their minds. Mm. There was probably yes. 10, 15 percent. Of, I don't know. I, I can't tell you. There was probably some amount of people who were undecided at that. Point. Right. I actually wonder what what the content of that comment would have done. I wonder if it would have made people who were thinking about supporting Trump have a moment. Um, I don't know. You know, it's hard to really say because I think Trump attacked the attack. This certainly attacked the supporters of Bernie. And if he didn't do it, his supporters oh, for certainly sure. did. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, socialism actually, to be honest, socialism has deserved to be dragged through the mud in some very publicly voracious way. Because I mean, I, I, I can't imagine a situation in which you know people could be less objectively educated about the repercussions of mm, certain things that have yes. happened in this century. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Socialism does not work. Socialism does not help people. Socialism does not raise human well-being. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I think it was good that we saw a mainstream American candidate who was really trying to spin this stuff mm. because it. I definitely think it forced a couple of people to open their eyes. On the other hand, I think there are probably 15 to 20 to maybe even 30 percent of sometimes people in this country who are just socialists at all times. Right. Sure. So, yeah, who yeah. Knows? so something I found useful and, and this actually ties back to mindfulness a bit. I know we went on this great uh, tangent, and it's really interesting that, you know, the phenomenon of Trump and all this stuff, and I really like everything you said. But I think it's really useful to uh, acknowledge the role tribalism plays in politics, like just how entrenched these two things are, especially very recently, where it went from, like, if you look at debates from the 1970s, the 1960s, presidential debates, political debates, intellectual debates, there, there is a certain level of decorum. There is a certain level of respect. Um, uh, motions were kind of put aside and you would stick with the argument and you would debate ideas. And people would still do this today, but I see a lot more of emotion. I see a lot more low blows. I see a lot more of disrespect. Um, just a quick example on the subject of the wage gap and feminism, right? So people have been debating this today. This same debate was happening 40 years ago. And my favorite uh, version of this was one on the William Buckley show, Firing Line. I don't know if you know him, but he would have yeah, a, he, yeah, he had a great uh, platform, I think. Uh, that was an interview with Timothy Leary. I love that. Yeah, so he had a great platform. I was really inspired by him in a way, even if I disagree with different pol- politics. But he had Thomas Sowell, the American economist, who's brilliant, against um, a leading kind of feminist figure. I forget her exact background. It's a very brief video, but I, I might link it with this this talk, but because it's so interesting where to the feminist credit, she, she was uh, emotionless, like she kept her emotions at bay and she just discussed the statistics, the economics, right? The ideas of the of the wage gap. And I mean, I w- it's, it's safe to say Thomas Sowell won the debate. He was very clear. He's an African-American economist, which is actually kind of rare. If you look at economics, it's a very homogeneous field. If you want to talk about like straight white men, that they dominate economics, right? I mean, we did have the first, I think, woman head of the Fed chair, uh, Janet Yellen, recently. She's not there anymore. That was uh, revolutionary, but it's kind of crazy when you think about how few black and women are in economics. That's a different matter. But with the wage gap, it's quite clear if you talk to any economist, man or woman, 
um, that it's grossly misunderstood by the public. I think even Obama said like, yeah, women make 77 cents to the dollar and just left it at that. And I could tell he was just throwing a bone to a certain political group. But my point is, is that back then though, even though the feminist woman and Thomas Sowell were diametrically opposed and she probably was not a fan of him, they were very respectful to each other. And there wasn't as much tribalism. But today, if I if I talk about the wage gap, like I have to brace myself and I have to be very selective with my words. I need to know my audience. Even Jordan Peterson, for instance, he's a complete litmus test. Um, I have all sorts of friends who have all such a spectrum of perspectives on him, which is re refreshing. And in, and then where I live in Amsterdam, it's beautiful. You can discuss anything and people welcome it, but they'll challenge you. And that's how it should be. Uh, in America, though, uh, sometimes, right, I say controversial things and people get really upset. So, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on all this, but. Well, I think we've indulged that as Americans a lot. And mm. I think part of the part of the thing was this whole safe campus. Uh, anytime where, where you start getting things that might turn into law or code or anything like that, like even if you just get like a little preview of what mm -hmm. something like safe spaces on campuses yeah, would be yeah, there. Right. Uh, who's going to get deplatformed? Even when you just get a little taste of government <laughs> deciding who can speak, the damage that it does to free speech oh, is not God. in that person not being able to speak, but in the almost, I'm going to call this the terroristic notion mm -hmm. of thinking, yeah. I can deplatform you if I just shout loud enough. Correct. Now that's like, that's holding people Scares hostage. Yeah, that's really like scary. what we're afraid of terrorists doing, that if we negotiate with mm -hmm. them, then the, the next time they come back, you know, they kid kidnap the next little child, you know, they'll get more money. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that is the same mechanism in play. Yes. Um, I noticed that when I went to college, actually, there would be all these speakers who would get booed and there'd be all kinds of categorically bad, you know, <laughs> assertions about people before they had even, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff with uh, Ben Shapiro is just mm -hmm. ridiculous. I mean, I don't agree with him on everything, but, but the way he's been treated has been very obviously part of this. But yeah, for sure. uh, when I got to the books in classroom, I mean, we were getting taught Douglas Murray in my psychology mm, The bell curve, like, yes. Oh, the, that was probably the, that was what level, kicked it off. On yeah. some level, the rational, coherent pictures are still making their way into textbooks, mm, it seems like. Interesting. Um, even when they're really, really controversial perspectives, which yes. tells me that there's got to be something about the public speaking forum or uh, mm. someone who essentially uses their career as a public speaker as a platform to even make money or maybe to affect social change right. that the people have a significant problem with that. And I think there's a reason for that. And it's something that you brought up, which mm. is that a good orator can demonically draw the masses. Mm. Yes. People, people are keenly aware of that fact a little bit more maybe than they were before the age of say television. Mm. Um, and if you're more keenly aware of that fact, you might more viciously protest uh, an enthusiastic, attractive speaker, speaker like Jordan Peterson right. yeah, uh, yeah, coming yeah. to say things that might belittle your worldview. Now, I've seen a lot of these debates go completely sour. Yes. And I know that yeah. talking about these issues in public is something that can make or break someone. But I think right. that everyone has a certain intrinsic political motive still in saying the things that they say. Um, I don't want to speculate too much about Jordan, mm. but um, I will no, say uh, with please, him, I'm curious. Yeah. I, I see him, I see him saying things. 
out is that he says that women like people that always sticks and men like things. Yes. And he uses this as kind of a bedrock element Mm. of how to build the rest of his continuum Mm. about how gender roles work in our current world. Right. And what he completely ignores and what no one calls him on somehow is the fact that these conditions were observed in a situation in the last hundred years where thousands of years Mm. of the subjugation of women has already been going on. Right. So you, you, in a way we have, there is a very real way in which men have conditioned women Mm. to like people and not things and to like, uh, the things that they want. And I I feel like I'm going to even offend some feminists for saying that. (laughs) I I hope not. I feel like it sounds like you're in their camp. Like you're throwing them a bone here. <laughs> Coming to objective observations about what men and uh, women want—it's not. Yeah. It's just never going to be truly objective in a sense that can be rationalized in an argument the way that he likes to have those arguments. Right. So uh, I think that gender roles, sex roles, stuff mm-hmm. like that—they have to be examined. And you know, I don't even know the best way to examine them. I, I, I don't think it comes from uh, doing case studies on men and women who mm. have a evolved mm. in a very specific way. We're on on one rung of the evolution of time yeah. scale, um, and have culturally evolved um, based on the conditions that have always existed. Right. I wonder, you know, how those studies would play out, for example, if you, instead of measuring 20th or 21st century women and men in America, if you measured, um, I don't know, um, you know, some Amazon warrior chicks from right. the Molossian tribes <laughs> nice, in Greece yeah. thousands yeah. of years ago, what would be different there? Oh, so I, maybe there's sure a, a lot, that, yeah. Maybe there's a reason those Amazons didn't survive, but... You know what would be interesting? So I'm quite curious about the differences between men and women, the biological differences, the social differences, and so forth, and and getting to the root of that, right? I can see like you're, you know, like this is a tight, this is not something that I have to be cautious with who I talk about this with, but I do think I have a nuanced perspective. And I, I have try to be to cautious about talking about this period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but I. I feel like I've had two different kind of conversations and one type, I say what I'm about to say and people are like, yeah, of course, that's obvious. That's usually my friends. And then then there's the other side that's like, what did you just say? You know, it's like, this is so horrible, but I'm going to try to be as nuanced as as possible. And I'm going to give one disclaimer, which is I need to read more feminist literature. I need to become more well-versed in the history of the patriarchy, the history of men relations, because I just am ignorant on that. And until I've done my proper research, I think, on all dimensions, I should refrain from making big sweeping judgments, so I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to give an observation. So I can't talk about the past, but I can talk about the present and what I've observed. I'm taking the MATLAB programming course for neuroscientists in my master's right now at UVA. The reason I bring this up is that I feel like this bring it was kind of like a natural experiment. So it was an experiment. Nobody designed it. Nobody's studying this. It's just me observing things. But what happened was in my neuroeconomics cohort, so neuroeconomics is a blend of neuroscience, economics, psychology, looks at human behavior. It's 50%. It's roughly 50% men, 50% women. And that's really nice in the classroom. I'm not used to that. My background in econ and math was always dominated by men. And I thought that was a shame. I think it's good to have both and you have a good diversity of perspectives right very nice where this gets interesting though 
is that in my programming course, half of it is neuroecon students, so eight, eight men, eight women. And then in the other half, it's masters in brain and cognition, so like future kind of neuroscientists. In this group, it's 90% women. And I found that really interesting. There could be, of course, many factors for this. But it, one of the factors that it's not is that this is obviously not discrimination. Uva didn't say, men, you can't apply, or we're only going to accept 10% of men who apply. No, no, no. This happened purely naturally. It's just interest, right? It's just for whatever reason, either because of the biological background, and there's a lot of women who study biology in college, or... Uh, the psychological background, I think more women than men study psychology in, in various campuses. But for whatever reason, 90% are women. And I was, I got the opportunity to sit in the programming class where we're told to do the same thing. But during the week, I spend one of the sessions with the NeuroEcon group where it's half men and women. And the other half, I do it with the 90% women group or it's 90% with me being there. So it's even more than 90%. And it's so different. The ambiance is different. The way people talk to each other is different. The emotional connections are different. The levels of emotional intelligence are different. The amount of warmth and, and, and connection is different. And, you know, it might just be, okay, fine, small sample size. The the, the people in the, who do brain and cognition, they're just a lot, more, um, a lot more social and a lot more emotionally intelligent. It has nothing to do with men and women. But I'm like, no, I think there's a, there's, there's, there's a piece to this. I think women are better than men at certain social kind of things um but in any case i just thought it was interesting i hope it's not that provocative or offensive for me to say this it's just something i observed you know i can't uh, you know i definitely have that ex uh, a similar quality of experience mm. to that in a lot of ways i think as far as I think what you're kind of getting at is that in the more mathematical well, part of what you're getting at, yeah. maybe is that in the more mathematically driven side of this, mm. you there were less women, right? Yes. Am I getting that right? True. Okay, and in the 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 class that was more geared towards understanding people and understanding human behavior, there were more women. Yeah, in biology. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that you can certainly view that through your typical Jordan Peterson type lens and it's going to make, it's gonna make some sense. It's yeah. going to make some sense really quickly. Right. Um, I think another question to maybe be asking is why you're, because you, you didn't just talk about the numbers that were in both classes. Oh yes. You talked about the experience of being in those classes, right? right? That experience is subjective. Of course, and it's absolutely so subjective. You you felt warm being in a situation. I'm assuming with more women in it, right? <laughs> of course, part of and it was a novelty factor. How do you think factor? women in that situation feel? A bunch of them around, maybe not so many men around. I bet they're pretty happy. <laughs> they, they, they look very happy I, I don't mean to like counter what you said i'm just a, i'm just taking by one anecdote right this is not science i but. mean if i'm gonna go with the evolutionary biological perspective maybe Please. they're not that happy i mean if you're going with what's really really well, from that I why wouldn't they be happy for the sake of argument right i'm not necessarily why wouldn't they? yes because there's <laughs> oh man <laughs> here we go <laughs> there's a limited amount <laughs> Of, uh, of, uh, partners, possible mates. Partners. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to complete. Okay. There's a limited amount yeah. of choice. 
you know what I'm talking about. I'm <laughs> yes. not going to complete yes. this yeah, yeah. But Go on. But we're wired to think that. Now, women are less wired to think that than we are because mm. obviously there isn't the same limitation on sperm as there is on eggs. True. Uh, yeah, this different, is a real thing. Yeah. Two totally mm-hmm. different things. Yes. But uh, viewed from that lens, well, let's let's come to what like a like an assessment of that is in terms of human well-being, for example. If we're going right. to go with the utilitarian yeah. perspective, yeah, yeah, let's sure. just say we're looking at this for where is human happiness distributed? Yes, um, you could look at your class with the more women in it. Right. You could say that if there's a lot of women in it, if it's ninety percent women. And we're going with my evolutionary biological perspective. There's actually less happiness probably in that class than where it's evenly divided. Yes, right. So I don't. I think that says something very interesting about the staggered, like any situations between sexes that are yeah. kind of staggered population-wise. But I also I'm very hesitant to indulge. Still, I'm very hesitant still I, to I indulge in yeah. any <laughs> notions about what women necessarily want to re- acquire on an intellectual level. Mm, mm, yeah. And I think it's also because experientially um, I've met women who are very much the opposite of that. Right. Of course. Uh, of course. But I, it's, I get it, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's hard to generalize though. Yes. So another observation <laughs> was one observation I had. Um, another observation was I went to a, Oh wait, sorry. Before I go into that, there was something you said that I wanted to respond to. In terms of the women being unhappy, so I think in this very specific situation, they're not, they don't care about finding a future partner yet. I think they just care about learning programming. So, like, I'm irrelevant. Like, I, I got zero attention when I was there, by the way. I didn't, like, <laughs> I was just doing my programming. Uh, but they loved each other. So, you know, I'm not, I was happier for sure. Uh, part of that is because, again, I'm used to classes being mostly guys. That's just kind of boring to me. And yes, I am interested in finding a future wife and things like that. So, and it's very, it's, I feel like there's a higher probability of me finding a future wife when I'm with a room of like really intelligent, ambitious people, right? You also are interested in the brain like I am. That's just, that's, that's human nature to me to be kind of attracted to people with similar interests and, and so forth, regardless of gender. But something I wanted to also note was when I studied abroad in France, I was in a program that had 25 women and four guys. And the women were definitely upset that there was only four guys. And the guys were definitely happy that there was only four guys. So you're absolutely right on that. And there I actually had conversations with women about that very thing. And like I totally could empathize in that if I if it was reversed, if it was 25 guys and four girls, like there's no way I'd have a chance with any of those girls, you know, unless I got lucky. So I would, I would be frustrated. Then again, I'm in France, I'm in a new country, I'll talk to the locals, you know, but that's besides the point. I, I totally understood why this woman was upset. So I think you're totally right on with that. Not in the programming example I gave, because it's just a different situation, but definitely in general, as, as, a, as an observation, I think it's quite on point. Um, something else I noticed, I was at, at Thanksgiving dinner with, it was about equal men and women, but we did talk about the differences in men and women. And I listened very carefully to what the women had to say. And what was nice was the guys didn't dominate. It was actually a very balanced conversation, which was beautiful. You know, uh, the guys were pretty quiet. Dream. Yeah. So usually right mansplaining, I totally understand where that word comes from. I've seen it many times. I wish there would still be a woman splaining. Like, I don't want to use the word woman splaining because it's like I get why people get upset when women do that because they're like, well, no, guys typically do it. And I see it all the time, mansplaining. So I'm like, fine. But at the same time, you know, 
being patronizing and being condescending is a human trait. It's not one gender. But yes, it's true with a certain guy who's arrogant. There's nothing more insufferable than a guy who's in love with himself explaining to a woman her field, which she knows more about. Yeah, okay. Anyways, all that aside, what the women, what one of the women said, and it was really interesting people who were there. They're like dancers. They're uh, some were scientists, uh, very intellectual, very interesting and thoughtful and artistic. The woman said she's like, I feel like guys are better at shutting off their brain. As in, like, if we're watching the game, right, some sort of sport, or if we're um, just sitting, like, something I observed from a very young age, you get a group of teenagers together. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but have you ever been in a room with a bunch of guys and they're literally just staring at a wall? Like, they're not saying anything, they're not doing anything, they're just chilling right Usually alcohols involved or, or weed yeah but you yeah. you've noticed this right at the risk of generalizing or making assumptions i i don't know what it's like to be in a room where it's all women and 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 they're with themselves i'm not there right as soon as i walk in it's it's probably a, a little bit this is all screams of two separate scientology meetings <laughs> but anyways um i i can't help but think I have a heart. I'm sure it exists. I don't want. I don't want to make right. I don't want to make any oversimplifications. But I have a hard time imagining a group of like ten or fifteen women just all staring at a wall with like not on drugs or anything, just kind of like or just watching the game. I know that exists, but it's just not as common. Do you, do you see isn't. what I'm saying? You're right. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, actually, all right, <laughs> getting somewhere. I, so I posted something on Facebook. Uh, you gotta check it out after we get done. Yes, please. Uh, it's a it's a video of it's called the freshman philosopher, and he comes in and he sees like these his roommates are watching a game, and yeah. he's just you, you gonna watch that pointless game where nothing ever happens and everything in life is already pointless. So oh Jesus, this yeah. is even more pointless. Um, but, like, I think there's something kind of interesting about what you just said, though, mm, um, because if you look at how, like, I guess sports is the most powerful example to use. Mm. Um, men are drawn to it in a certain way that women aren't. Right. It's very strange true. Because sports are very much about people, aren't they? Sort of. It does involve people, but there's an objective uh, with American football. It's very similar to war in a way. You know, there's the end zone and you got to get go inch by but inch. What about fantasy football and they trade all these people that, that they know all their names? Oh, so competition. It's still, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but go on. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I just think that it, that is actually kind of an interesting ground to examine. I think maybe it's actually maybe a little bit simpler than either of us are making it, which right. is that more boys play sports than girls. So they want to watch more sports than girls. That's part of it. I think part of it is a tribalism thing, going back to that theme, where like I can only – I think of my brother. So he's a hardcore uh, soccer fan. He almost was a semi-professional soccer player. So he's invested a lot of time and energy into the sport and watching the sport. He's a diehard fan of Liverpool, a team in England. And um, Liverpool plays every Sunday. He watches it like it's a religion, right? And Sunday, some people go to church. My brother goes to the TV to watch his, his team. But it's like, it's his tribe. You know what I mean? So he's very biased in that if any, if the ref calls anything to the other team's favor, it's bullshit. Anything in, in favor of his team is the right thing, right? And he's very irrational in this one domain and not so much in other domains. So it's really interesting to me as like a, whatever you call me, a neuroeconomist, to just look at that and be like, okay, this is tribalism at its height. And this is true for so many Europeans, so many South Americans, so many Africans, right? Soccer is not just a sport to them. They don't see it that way. It's a way of life. 
Um, that explains the kind of things that you see at the soccer stadium yes. when there's a big victory. Right, and the actually, riots. Yeah. That's actually definitely true. You're very right about and that. And there's a lot of pain, like um, <laughs> so much pain. If you watch a penalty kick shootout and you're at, in the stadium watching it, or in my case, I was in France during the 2006 World Cup final. You might have heard this where the captain of the French team, arguably one of the greatest players who ever lived, he headbutted another player at the finals. I don't know if you heard about this. It was all over the news everywhere because this never happened ever it's the biggest game of your life it was the last game of his career they probably would have won if he hadn't done it and then this happened right and i was in france and it was silent right this was worse than losing the final which is like the worst thing that can happen to a country it's just devastating because they're waiting for this to win a world cup and it they did lose but that wasn't the what was hard the hard part was seeing their hero do this and walk off the field i mean shock like shock like seeing someone get shot or something you know like actual shock was felt everywhere and it's it's really interesting observing that kind of stuff so sports are interesting yeah Yeah. (laughs) maybe it's just i've always sort of also thought that it's it's rooted in it maybe sports came to prominence because we stopped killing each other less Mm. and it's like the a energy replacement. from all of that. I mean, <laughs> if you look at these soccer riots, I yeah. mean, some of them, the, the instinct to do that mm. seems like it's very similar to the instinct of getting ready to kill a bunch of opposing people who are trying to invade your village. Yeah, there, there's some of it so, to there, sure. Football has this very militaristic context to it. Yeah, it's kind of primitive a little bit, right? Kind yeah, of, yeah. I, I think it fulfills a certain need I do too. that some people have. I get, I get it from other places, but... But then to go back to how we even got on this subject, like why is do men why are men so gravitate towards it versus women? But I think that's just one of those things where instead of applying all these different frameworks that you, which you can do instead of trying to explain it, I think it would be better just to accept it and say, look, there's just some things that more guys are interested than girls and vice versa. Like chess is another very good example. I, I remember I saw one video, I think it was with Milo Yiannopoulos, um, you know, and he's of course just a troll, but he was he was in a debate um, with this uh, African-American woman who was saying women are and women of color are discouraged from playing chess. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's truth to that. On the other hand, though, it's like, how hard is it to get into chess? On one hand, it, if we went back 40 years, yeah, you need to find someone to play. And then if men are sexist and there are plenty of men that are sexist, maybe they'd say, no, it's not even worth my time to play a woman and there'd be a piece of shit and that'd be very discouraging. I understand that argument. The problem is... Today, in the 21st century, if you're listening to this right now, and you have a computer, you can play chess with anyone in the world. And it's free, and you just go to chess.com, it's easy to remember, and you can be playing chess. And you can become as good or as bad as you want to. No one is holding you back. And and actually, I've heard from my last guest I had on here that he's met many great people on chess.com and made friendships. So it's quite supportive. Bottom line... I understood the woman in the argument being mad at Milo. I, I don't know why anyone wouldn't be angry at him. I mean, that's literally what he does. That's what he's good at is provoking people. But on the other hand, like he did reveal how poor her argument was. I mean, he didn't say what I said. I think that would be the strongest argument in favor that, look, anyone can play chess. But I think it's interesting that a lot of the women I know, when I mention things like chess, when I mention things like a Rubik's Cube, when I mention things, I don't know, there's other examples those two come to mind. 
they're just not interested and there's nothing wrong with that and i don't think we should infer from that something about their brain or intelligence or anything. No, no 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 it's just they're not interested i mean maybe if we look at the history of chess it's related to war and guys like that i have no idea right there's probably a whole history no no that, but that's but that's the end of the conversation then yes i mean exactly the end of that mm, part yes. of, and that's actually I'm, I'm not gonna i have no quarrel with that fair enough yeah, yeah. No, so anyway, so this was a very different start <laughs> to an episode I usually have. This is great. I like to think like this podcast has three phases. Like the first one is getting to know my guest, and that's what we're going to do next. And then the second phase is discussing ideas like this. And then the third phase will be like actually thinking of solutions. And, you know, I don't think I'm at that stage yet. This is only episode 13. But to bring it all the way back to the beginning, the second question I typically ask my guests is like, I want to know more about you. Like, who is Zeke Sky? I want to get to know your history with music with philosophy you know you can approach this any way you like but just so the listeners and i can get to know you better just any way you like um yeah uh i guess where should i start uh i started playing guitar when i was like 11 or 12 mm. i played for a very long time then but then i got kind of sidetracked i was wrestling for a long time and i went to university to do that um right. and then i stopped wrestling at university and started playing guitar started playing in bands a little bit more nice. studied philosophy and music um i um have spent a lot of time in my life i would say a solid 20 percent or 15 percent maybe just mm -hmm. in the woods that's kind of like my favorite thing to do is <laughs> so awesome. I, you could actually say that that's like a defining characteristic of my life wow um, and then i um just i guess i had a choice when i graduated i decided i could either be a clever person and maybe become a lawyer or do mm -hmm. something in the sciences or i could be a gritty rock and roll person and i decided um, I got so my first job in like a pretty serious band in New Jersey um, in about, I guess that was probably a year or two after I graduated college, so I'm going to say that's 2013. Um, and then I was playing a lot of bands, other people's bands for a long time, not really doing much, but mm. making enough money to kind of make a living. And then about two years ago, I started my own band, and nice. that took off a little bit better. Um, so now I've kind of gotten the opportunity to play to a bunch of people, open for some of my favorite bands. Beautiful. We sold a record all around the world. It was the first record I had ever released and kind of um, written myself. Mm. And it got, you know, for a first record from a band, it you know, did pretty well. People all over the world seemed to like it. And, and when did that come out, that, that album? That is Animals of God and More, and that came out in July. So oh, just wow. a couple months now. Yeah, that's amazing. So you're right. So right off that, yeah. I do a lot of I, I do a lot of just music mm. related work too. So I'll play alone and I'll play with band with my band. Nice. But um, recently I've had not like a ton more spare time, but more spare time than usual. So I've indulged the other side of things that has mm. naturally been occurring to me for a long time, in which I studied a lot, nice. um, which has been philosophy. And I've had like a renewed interest in science. Um, science is the kind of thing that because there's so much good science writing out mm. there, um, everyone is sort of, you know, has the ability to learn a lot about it, but I've always had the same attitude about it as I've had about music, which is the best way to do it, to know anything about it is by doing it. Mm. And that I haven't really had the opportunity to do, unfortunately, but I'll have to content myself with, uh, <laughs> 
you know, reading the best of it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a beautiful summation. I wanted to say before we started this podcast, I was out in town and I was giving, going to have tea at my favorite cafe and I found your album on Spotify and I listened to the whole thing before, uh, right before starting. And I really liked it. I'm very, uh, I'm very unexposed to that genre of music. Uh, just real quick, I'm curious, how would you classify your music? What genre does it belong to, or does it belong to several? Because I was struggling a little bit. I really enjoyed it, but I was struggling to classify it. Oh man. <laughs> Uh, having some audio. Uh, sorry. No, you're fine. I can edit that out. Yeah. So, how would you classify your music? Um, I it's, I can't. I, I can't <laughs> to yeah, yeah. And I yeah. I get cl- I know who I know what I get clumped in with, mm. and I know what to put it out there as. You know, the the typical things are heavy metal, progressive rock, jazz, and a little bit of classical music mm, um, yes. are the things that I hear. Um. But um, in terms of the music that's inspired me, it's a lot of times been rock, what you would call rock music, um, metal music, jazz, and classical music. Yeah, so that combination right there, right, those three, uh, or you said four things, but, right, that's really interesting. Because when I was listening to the album, right, I liked it, I appreciated it. I don't think I could appreciate it as much as musicians who play in, right, in metal and rock and, right, I don't, I don't have any experience with guitar, for instance, but I do have a lot of experience with piano, like I've been playing the piano for 20 years. So when I was listening to your album, it was just so beautiful when, I think it was the second to last song of God and War, and a minute and a half in, I think, or two minutes in, I remember I was reading my book while listening to your music. It was actually very good kind of background music to read to, which is kind of weird, but I like to read to whatever genres. And it would be great. A lot of the album would be great to work out to, to run to, right? Like really, really good. Um, and for our listeners, your album is on iTunes, right? And Spotify, I was listening to it. And it's totally available. Listen to it. It's really interesting. But a minute and a half into of God and War, I, there's just this sudden transition. And you're playing, and you're just playing piano, this beautiful piano. And I was like, I forgot for a moment that I was listening to your album, right? It really stood out. And then I'm just like, oh, man, like I enjoyed it up to that point. But once that hit, I got into like a beautiful flow state, which is what I'm after all the time, every day. And I usually get with music and, med- and meditation, but it just happened, right? And I'm listening to that. And then I'm like, holy shit, this is Zeke. Like, this is extraordinary. I Like, and I was so shocked. I think that's part of why I, my, my brain enjoyed it so much was it was out of, literally came out of nowhere, I, right? Because I don't think there is piano in it up until that point. And so then I hear that and I'm like, what? And I'm totally biased to the piano. I love most music that has piano in it of any genre, but yeah, I really love that song of God of War, and I'm sure I'll re-listen to it many times. But Well, just to harken back to our previous discussion, lots of girls like that. <laughs> I'm sure. I've, I have some experience with that, but they love piano and that kind of piano. It was beautiful. Honestly, Thank like, you, yeah, really it was really beautiful. That. How did you come up with that? How long have you been playing piano? Like, what's your process, you know, with composition? Um, piano, I started a little bit later than guitar. I'm going to say I was like 17 or 18, first time I I started sitting around at a piano. Um, my process is the same, I guess, as it is on guitar. I find things that I like playing. A lot of times I'll be sitting around doing something completely unrelated to music, mm-hmm. and I'll hear something in my head, 
and I'll stop whatever it is I'm doing and I'll either hum that idea into my phone or I'll go sit down at the piano. It can be really inconvenient sometimes, like really inconvenient sometimes, but I always do it. And a lot of those ideas that were hummed into my phone maybe even years ago ended up finding their way to the record that we recorded a couple months ago. So, um, you know, that's mostly my process. I also try to like now, now, especially a little bit more in my career that I have a little bit more free time. Um, I just try to get as much experience as, as much celestial experience as I can, I guess. Mm. Um, I'm, I'll take psychedelic drugs. I'll hang out in the woods nice. for a long time. <laughs> Sounds very yeah, healthy like, and interesting. Like yeah. doing kind of things that test my will. I think they inspire me a lot. Wow. So, um, yeah, I'll do stuff like that. And I'll also, I'm also pretty obsessive about poetry, literature, mm. ancient philosophy. Um, I sleep with a copy of the Iliad next to my bed. <laughs> That's awesome. I need to read that. I read the Odyssey. I've not read the Iliad, so I'll put that yeah, on my book you gotta, list. Yeah, um, I'm sure it's, it's incredible. Uh, it's, of course, it's the classic. It's better than the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I haven't read the Bible either. I want to read all the religious texts, but I would throw in the Iliad under my uh my next project to read all the religious texts because why not it's just as epic um if not more so but um so something i wanted to unpack real quick now twice you mentioned the woods very nonchalantly i need to hear more about that <laughs> when did you first go into the woods what experience do you have there and and why yeah yeah i'm really curious it started when i was young actually um i was actually kind of a little bit maybe too much of a danger seeker when I was a little kid. Mm. Um, I, there's a story that actually my dad is also a musician. He turned it into a song one time when I was like seven or eight, like really young. Um, I walked into the large, large backyard of my grandparents. It was kind of like, I was just a place that I always hung out when I was younger and they let me go off and do whatever I wanted. And I would just pick up snakes. I would just pick up lots of snakes. And I brought one to my grandmother one day. And I'll never forget the look on her face because she was just not very enthralled with the principle of me catching snakes. But that was like my favorite thing to do when I was a little kid was just hang out with snakes. Um, super weird to think about now. But <laughs> as to your character, yeah. Before I understood the symbolism of a snake. Right, right, right. Um, I guess as I started getting older, my fascination was just like, I grew up, and you did too, I guess, in a time where people became increasingly more interconnected. Mm. And my response to that was not like what many people's response is, which is to just be frustrated or just be angry at the internet. Mm. I took whatever kind of energy I was feeling about the internet a lot of the times and just felt like I needed to have my phone off and be restricted in nature to my Beautiful. thoughts. Yeah, that's so important. It gives you, I think being in nature gives you the opportunity to meditate with your eyes open. Is mm, one way that's a beautiful way to phrase it. I'm going to remember yeah. that one. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I've like, I've had a couple of psychedelic experiences uh, involving nature that have completely, I would say shifted my entire perspective on life. Mm. Um, some of them that, some of them that like really, really, I don't, I don't even know how to put this because I, I've been a skeptic for a long time of many topics of religion, but um, some of them just had this presence of almost like if I took the entirety of the experience and just condensed it into a small little sentence that was mm. this long, it would just be to say there has to be a God. <laughs> I mean, that was, <laughs> there has to be something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, I, I think it's also about what you go into one of the reasons I went into it was I wasn't going to seek any like huge, massive, massive thing that would be life changing. Right. I wasn't going 
yeah. fishing for sharks of ideas. I was trying to go out with a little little net to get the, those small minnow ideas, mm-hmm. maybe even like smaller fish ideas that can kind of bring you into a totally that all together kind of maybe add up to something significant. And right. It's hard to it's hard to talk about psychedelics sometimes too because um, people uh, have all kinds of different reactions to them, and I cannot tell anyone that you know what to do. All I can do is speak about my own experiences with them and with nature. And I think that there is, I, I can't prove it with science. I can't prove it in any rational way. Mm. I think there is some kind of connectivity between psychedelic experience and nature. Oh, that is no just, doubt. No doubt. It's, it's very deeply rooted and I don't think it can be explained in um, just logistical terms that would make any sense. Mm. Um, it's, it's almost like talking about dying. In a way, yeah, it's like just one of those experiences. Body of reasoning that could become available to a human being. It's experiential, could, yeah, yeah. I mean, but you couldn't, you couldn't really explain the phenomenon of dying. You, you, you couldn't explain. I mean, no. you, you can talk about heaven and stuff like that, but yeah, consciousness saying. being eradicated because we don't have anything to. There's no nothing that it is to be to not be. Yes, you know correct. I, I know, I, I totally know what you're saying. The the closest thing we have to understanding death is understanding what it was like before we're born. It's like, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, <laughs> Your brain's not going to be able to compute I, I think, it. <laughs> I, think, I think being in nature reminds us sometimes of maybe the most purposeful part of being here. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. I, I just, I, I try to gravitate to that as much as possible. Yeah, so... I mean, I think that gravitation you have is both incredibly healthy and very just human. You know, it's like uh, I would would recommend it to all of our listeners to go into nature more and leave your phone at home. I mean, if you okay, if you're concerned about safety, fine, have in your pocket, but turn it off and really don't engage. And um, there's so many people who are always looking at their phones, right? I think that's the most recent Facebook post I made was telling people to get off their phones. And I posted a Simon Sinek video of him talking about the addiction to stimulation and the addiction to phones. And it's getting worse with each passing generation, you know? And I mean, I'm just as, I'm just as suspected to the rest. I, I, I am cognizant of how much I spend time on my phone and I might justify it. Right. I might say, Oh no, I'm not mindlessly looking through Facebook or playing a stupid app. I'm connecting to people for my podcast and I'm reaching out to people around the world. And this is really positive. It's like, yeah, it's positive, except you're not putting a restraint on it. You're not saying, you know what, for one hour, I will do that. And then for the other 23 hours, I'll be off my phone. You know, that would be maybe a healthier approach. And I'm working on it. But this experience you had in the woods is so common with people who venture to do that, that there actually has been science, scientific research done on it and valid peer-reviewed scientific research. And I, I used that in a paper I wrote called The Importance of the Environment and Society and culture on mental illness. So looking beyond pharmaceutical drugs, which have positive and negative effects, and I, if you're taking pharmaceutical drugs right now, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not gonna tell you what to do about that. What I will say is there's additional things you can do with that. And what the studies have shown, very convincing studies. If you have twins, they have found that when one lives in a city, I mean, this is an anecdote, but when one lives in a city and the other lives in nature or in rural areas, the person in the city is 50 times more like, I mean, not 50, 50% times more likely um, to have schizophrenia, to develop some severe uh, psychosis. And that's a more severe example. But what they found as an antidote is if you live in New York, maybe that's the best example, New York City, and you're always stimulating, you're always in an urban environment, just taking one 45-minute walk in nature a week 
can do more for your health than probably anything more than sleeping well or, or eating well like it's it's become that much of a problem and the benefits of nature are quite well known i would highly recommend a book to our listeners and maybe to you called the nature fix and they go into really good uh, scientific depth about how beneficial nature is for our brains and um so yeah I... that sounds that sounds like something i kind of just intrinsically know actually right, speaking sure. about sapiens there mm. is in the beginning of sapiens he discusses which this was one of the conversations I found very useful. He mm -hmm. talks about how at some point you get to some critical mass of 150 people can kind of work together yeah. without their needing to some kind of organized structure. And then over that you get issues. Um, and then he just goes on to talk about how this, how, how this leads to the city state complex. Mm. Um, and he just talks about the fact that we're not really built to live in close quarters with yeah. lots of other people with varying ideologies right. we've never really been built for that and i think that that's kind of there's there's two parts to that there's mm. the part of that where um it's true and we experience that phenomenon we know it every day mm. but the idea of cultural cultural melting pots and stuff like that it often gets presented as if it is this new idea that is exclusive to america or something like that i mean you can go back i mean i was reading about uh, who osiris uh, the great he uh lived in like you know 500 years before christ and he was i mean he's essentially a god in iranian to iranians and lots of people living in the middle east he's considered one of their greatest world conquerors ever right. and he gave the jews a new homeland or he allowed the <laughs> yeah. jews to go back to judea and built them a temple hmm. um there's been this there's been this other kind of force which is that there are people who realize and i don't know if cyrus was one of these guys right there are people who realize that there are cumulative benefits for both single individuals and for societies for bringing people together in this way so the the trade-off is kind of that you might get some kind of i, I want to call it um kind of cultural interference from being exposed to other people's constantly and being around the internet constantly, but it's still very alleviable by simply doing what you just said, which is taking time to be on your own, mm -hmm. taking time to find, um, find strength and solitude. Um, that is just hopefully something that isn't lost. And I think one of the things you also said that was interesting was you said, it's only going to get worse from here. Yes. Um, yeah. but if you look at what happened with maybe cigarettes, mm, um, yeah. There was a whole group of there was a whole generation of parents who started educating their kids about the horrors of smoking cigarettes. Right. So by the time you and I get around to having kids, maybe it's going to be an exercise I hope in so. just a new part of the discipline of raising a child to make them understand that they cannot just be doing this shit all day. Yeah. It's gonna be bad for health, it's gonna be bad for their relationships, it's gonna be bad for their growth as a person. Mm. Yeah, so great all that <laughs> great um something to add something I, a, a problem or an issue in the world that i really care deeply about and i'm excited because next week i just got the next guest for my podcast she's actually doing work in this area is social isolation and loneliness and i think this is a direct consequence of this constant stimulation we have with our phones um, it's very hard to, it's very easy to feel lonely where on a metro or walking or being in a restaurant where everyone's just looking at your phone. It's hard to engage. And I think it can take its toll on people both consciously and unconsciously. And I'm seeing how the best to approach this. When I went to see Dave Chappelle 
uh, the comedian. He was in Amsterdam. It was incredible. He's a hero of mine. I see him more as a philosopher than anything else. Me but, too. Yeah. So it was incredible to see him live. Even at this older of an age, he's just as funny as he ever was. I mean, he's really sharp. A great commentary on Dutch versus American culture is great. But when you go to see him live, he forces you to put your phone in this like uh, locked up bag. And it's really clever because I know the immediate argument people would have against that. They don't want to be separated from their phone. They'll say, like, what if there's an emergency? What if, you know, you know an emergency? You know, probabilistically speaking, it's rare, but fair enough. So they say, if there's an emergency, or the Dutch said, and they're very practical people, if there's an emergency, get off your seat, go just around the corner, and there's a area where you're allowed to use your phone. But you have to go to a guard to unlock it for you. You can't unlock it because they know people would if they could. And so, and then you can go to that area. You can make any phone call you want. If you feel really addicted to your phone, you can go there and go on social media. I saw some people doing that, which was kind of sad instead of talking to other people. But this, this is just what I saw. But the point was, is like, I'm like, that is an example of an intervention you can do. So for concerts, for, I would go one step further though. Any cafe you go to, if you're with friends or restaurants, it's like, just Put your phone in a basket, put it somewhere out of reach, and just be present with who you're with. I find yeah. it so disrespectful when I am eating dinner with somebody, not just like having a snack or a drink, but dinner, and they're looking at their phone when we haven't like seen each other in a while. And it's like, can't that wait a little bit? <laughs> like, is it really urgent? They might even say something like, oh, no, it's my mom, you know, and that might sound like, oh, that's fine. It's their mom. Like, parents are important, but it's like no it's it's like 8 p.m do you need to be texting your mom right now is she okay or are you like it just doesn't feel right to me i don't know it's good to kind of segregate these things a little bit i don't know the extent to which that is related to i'm not completely convinced of the relationship between that and human wellness mm. what i would say is that there is something that is in the collective unconsciousness that makes people extremely fixated on being able to understand things that are going on far away from. Them. Yeah. Um, some people are more fixated on it than other people are. Right. That's where we and expect if I'm going to be completely honest, I think those people fall into one of two categories. Either there are pressing things that demand their attention a lot, which not to be a jerk or anything. There are times where I really, really need to be minding my Um, and then there's another situation, which is the one I think we're really talking about. And I think that this actually stems from the, a certain brand of insecurity that would have maybe manifested itself in a different way had cell phones not been around. Right. It would have manifested itself in some kind of general distraction or inability to maybe even converse and focus on the conversation that you're having. The instinct to pick up your phone and look into the phone is only brought about by it ringing mm. or by you seeking out something from it. Correct, yes. You're seeking out something aside from the experience that you're just sitting down and having. It's, it's difficult to attribute it to anything besides that search for yes. some other thing that is meaningful in your existence, which kind of makes what you're saying even more damning. Cause if it is, the, if that is the case, then that person's not giving you, you know, the attention that you deserve as, as it hurts their friend a little bit. Yeah. So I, I, I also don't, you know, I, I don't know. This is certainly something that they're just 
there isn't any reasonable solution to. I mean, for mm-hmm. Dave Chappelle, and you can you have yes. the kind of draw where you can get people to right. abandon it's a their big cell event. Yeah, a concert. Yeah, sure. You know, that's yeah. one thing. Of course, I do think that we can all, each as individuals, just you know, do our best to be conscious of this. Yeah, yeah, that's a good step. <laughs> the best way to be conscious of it is when it happens to you, though. Right. You can't. You don't get conscious about it when you're on your phone. When you're you doing get it to conscious others, conscious about yeah, it yeah. when it happens to you, and you yeah. think that you deserve more attention than you're getting. You know what I mean? Yeah. It really depends. I also realize the degree to which I'm irritated. Right? I never like make a scene or yell at my friend or for doing it. I just kind of see it, get upset, but then just keep inside. And maybe that's unhealthy. But I should probably say something. But maybe I should tell you, tell them after the fact. But. It also depends what they're doing with their phone, I noticed. So, like, for instance, my best friend, who I've known since I was four years old, he he knows I re- this is, like, a personal problem of mine, and I get really irritated when people, like, get their phones in social situations, like parties or whatever. And of course, it's beyond my control. If I'm at a party, I'm not going to fucking hijack a good time and be like, you're on your phone, and you're on your phone, and put it away. No, like, fuck it. You want to be on your phone? Fine. I'll go find someone else to talk to. It's not a big deal. But... What do you do to piss me off one time? It's kind of a funny incident in retrospect, but we were having dinner, t- we were having dinner t- or lunch, lunch together and eating and everything was great. And then he pulled out his phone on purpose and he started playing a fucking game, right? He, 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 was, he wasn't to reach out to somebody. It wasn't even a compulsive need. He just was bored, I guess. And I guess we had stopped talking and it, he knew that it would annoy me, right? So I, I come up with a good response. I don't, I don't call him out on it. I don't, give him the satisfaction he wants of me making a scene or being upset, I just get up and walk out the door of the restaurant. And as I'm walking out the door, he looks up. He was not expecting that move on my part because no one does that, right? You just wait so your friend's up. No, no, no. Get rid of the power, right? Walk out. It's a power move. And then when he opens the door, right, he doesn't want to be like alone, right? This kind of ties back to loneliness. He doesn't want to be alone in this thing playing his game, right? And he was supposed to be with me. I mean, the whole reason we're together is to hang out. So he sees me walking out the door and he knows, right, I'm bipolar and bipolar people can be a little eccentric and unpredictable. So he might, there's probably a part in this thing like, is he actually leaving? Like he's actually just fucking done with me and like leaving? Like that would not be beyond Thomas to do to actually just leave. So I think it was a possibility of that that got his attention. He woke up and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, no, we can go now. Obviously, we're yeah, done with Yeah, you're about to be experience. lonely in actual yes. real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's I go. Like that. And that worked. And then he never did that again. But, <laughs> you know, so it's funny. He was doing it to fuck with me, but I think I got the – I won in the end, whatever that means. I think, but, I think you did, Thomas. Yes, thank you. So that's my strategy with doing with – but that's like a severe uh, situation. I, I never – Fortunately, I've never been on a date actually with a girl and have my date do that to oh, me. So that's really nice. I have. And what did you do? You probably didn't See, say anything. It depends on where you're at. Like, if of course. that girl is like, like if that girl's like kind of your girlfriend or something like that, and she's just always on her phone. Like, that's just uh, it's, it's just such a pain sometimes. It's but if you're on like a first date with a girl and she's on her phone incessantly, that's just like I'm gonna it's just be polite on. and then I'm just gonna not speak to you again because i already have like an understanding it's more annoying when you're in a relationship with someone and you've, yeah. you know you, when you're in a relationship with someone you already come to terms with some of the issues that they might have mm. you know you're already making some deal of compromise so it's just one of the new things you kind of uh have to swallow about that right. person um that they're constantly on their phone or something like that um it's really but sad. uh 
I should try what you tried. It sounds <laughs> like sounds like a good strategy. I think it's pretty effective because you're not okay. saying anything, right? And it's not. Maybe some people would quantify that or qualify that as passive aggressive, but I don't think it is. I think it's more, it's a statement and it's like speaking without words, you know, like it's an action. And I, I, I like to study persuasion and just like what changes people's minds and what I just like creating different responses from people. I like getting people out of their mindset. You're dangerous. When they're You're dangerous I'm dude. so dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you know that what you're saying though, this actually happened to me very recently. So I went to a post Mod I don't know what your views are on postmodernism. Um, I never knew that much about it. I knew that Jordan Peterson has this really big thing against it. And when I look it up on Wikipedia, I just get confused. It seems kind of convoluted. And it's a whole debate. And I know there's a debate between scientists and postmodernists back in the 90s, but I still don't really get it, right? So I'm like, oh, here's an opportunity. At my University of Amsterdam, there's a presentation on postmodernism. I can maybe learn something about it, you know? And I'm going to try to go into it without judgment. I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to say anything obviously not mention jordan peterson i'm not there to provoke to learn <laughs> so they do their presentation and i really don't learn that much but that's not the fault of postmodernism. that's just more the fault of the nature of the presentation it wasn't like a ted talk it wasn't a big presentation it was more students just talking about books they like in postmodernism, and yeah so it's kind of a low-key event and okay. it's free and then during a coffee break, I talked to one of them and she asked me a very simple question. Uh, what do you study? Right. A common question. So I say I'm doing a master's in neuroeconomics, but then I went one step further and I said, I want to get a PhD in the subject and look at persuasion. And usually when I tell people that they're curious at the very least, I don't know if they're pro or con, but they're curious, right? You don't hear that very often. She had a very different reaction. She started to show physical symptoms of fear. So she looked very uncomfortable. I'm, I'm assuming, but I, I think I can say with confidence that her amygdala might have been a bit activated, the part of the brain that when you're fearful and fight or flight. And then she proceeds to say something that no one, Zeke, in my entire existence has ever said to me. And this was like a week ago, so I've been telling everyone this story. It's really on my mind. But she says, I think you're capable of doing great evil. And she said that with complete sincerity. She think because I said I want to study persuasion and she saw that as dangerous, right? Okay. Yeah. So then we had one of the weirdest conversations I've ever had. This lasted a total of two minutes, this whole exchange, but a lot happened in that two minutes. So I say, I decide to play with this a little bit, right? So I go, do you agree that helping people in extreme poverty is a good thing? She's like, yeah, of course. Like, I'm like the most disenfranchised, the most oppressed people use their language a little bit. You think that's a good thing to help them? She's like, yeah. Now I said, what if I persuaded somebody to help people in poverty, to help people who are oppressed? And then she got really defensive and she went, well, no, who are you to say that? I'm like, okay. Who, who are you to decide what's the right thing to do? And I'm like, that's a fair question. Yeah, who the fuck am I, right? Okay. I mean, this is, we're really going deep here just after meeting each other. But I go, but wouldn't it be beneficial to persuade others to be more selfless and to help people? And she said, no, 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 it's wrong. It's wrong for you to persuade. I'm like, okay, because it's subjective and it's a power move, right? She's like, yeah, everything's subjective. There is no truth. I'm like, okay. Um, 
a lot of people, I brought up Hitler. I said, a lot of people don't like this Adolf Hitler guy, right? I mean, he did a lot of terrible things. She's like, yeah, but I'm like, but of course, Nazis really liked him. And so there's some people that see him as a terrible person, but there's also some people who really liked him. She's like, yeah, that's true. And I'm like, but most people really think Hitler did was a, a bad, he was evil. He was, he caused a lot of, of suffering and he killed a lot of Jews or was partly responsible for that. And he's a bad person. And she's like, yeah, I guess so. But still, it's subjective. And I'm like, man, she is really stuck on her ideals. And what it reminded me of, Zeke, was kind of talking to somebody in Scientology or somebody in a cult. I realized there is no getting through here. I, that was the most clever and most charitable way I could be before giving any insults. And I'm not going to do that. That was not my purpose of being there. So then we just kind of stopped our conversation there. But she was uncomfortable the entire time, you know, and I, I get it. I was totally challenging her entire worldview, essentially, and, and the way she sees the world. I mean, she's pretty invested, I think, with this postmodernism stuff, whatever that means. And um, at the end, though, to break away from her while being polite, I said, look, we just met. And I'm having to defend myself of not being an evil person to somebody I haven't met before. And I'm like, that's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, I'm not really prepared. So I'm just going to call it quits here. And she apologized uh, to her credit. I don't think she's a bad person. But it was a very uncomfortable experience and very bizarre. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Oh, wait, sorry. The, the audio is out a little bit. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Uh, what were you going to say? Postmodernism is one interesting bubble to yeah. look at this through. Sure, please. Um, now, not to say that it's not a very specific bubble, but I mean, you're going to want to remember when you're looking at something like postmodernism is that it is a place. Postmodernism is almost like a little machine that can take any kind of belief that yes. has come as the result of like some grand unifying theory and it can take it and just kind of dissolve it, it mm -hmm. by virtue of postmodernism by yeah. virtue of let's not That's have what it does. any it grand unifying theories about anything mm -hmm. uh and it's it's a very if you think about this specific one it is one of the most obvious responses you can think of mm. to the fact that human human enlightenment has gotten to a higher stage. It's right. just a skepticism, if you really think of postmodernism. I mean, I, I don't know what yes. exactly. It's a certain skepticism, yeah, right? I see what you're saying. About uh, the truths that we can come to by mm. virtue of. I mean, th there's all kinds of other places you'll find this. Like, I would say logical positivism is mm. almost like. I've heard of that the, too. Mm. Are you familiar with that movement? Sort of. I, I know I've heard of it, but not have it properly defined or conceptualized. Well, logical positivism was essentially this highly, almost militant brand of scientific skepticism that cast doubt on how people did uh, experiments and say, actually, some scientists joined the ranks of these philosophers, and they were mm. pretty popular in Vienna in yeah. the 1930s, especially okay. when relativity was becoming the new language of right. physics. Yeah. and it just expresses a certain level of skepticism of how scientists do experiments and mm. how they come to conclusions and stuff like that. Right. And one of, I mean, it gets really, really bizarre. Some of it's really interesting and I'll, I'll I'm just going to point it out for a please, second. So please I can do it. No, I'm very curious. Modernism. Yeah. Um, but you know, I read one author called Karl Popper, his mm. whole thing. Yes, I know. Him. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's essentially tells us that since human beings seek out the experiments they want and uh, they get, they get funding from people who are also human beings and they choose the staff they want and the conditions of the experiment. They ultimately sometimes get the results they want. 
The whole thing is just a giant temper tantrum against <laughs> our ability to do rational inquiry yeah, on uh, things that go on. But as it relates to postmodernism, this kind of specific brand of it, I think what you're generally going to see are people who have a certain a certain existential disposition to a way of life. I'm not going to single anyone out, out but no. people who really want something to be true, some mm, one specific yes, thing to yes, be true. Yeah, yeah. And it requires disabling the mechanism, which proves lots of other things to be true that might be against what that one thing that they want to right. be true is. Mm. So if you're already starting with the assumption that some of these people are going to be that type of person, right. I think it's very obvious you're going to see people really quickly who um, are going to be I mean, if they're going to be this, they're going to commit their lives to a belief that goes against general rationale in general, which is what I would say about a lot of postmodernism. Mm. Um, I haven't read enough to right. say that's everybody, but yeah. I do know enough to think that it is um, kind of a, a barrier mm. between parts of science that are really, really useful. Right. I mean, especially just things like if there is any such thing as a grand unifying theory, which yeah. I don't know if there is. And if we listen too much to postmodernists, we're not going to go about trying to find it. Yeah, you know, to me, just like gonna... at the at the at the risk of oversimplifying, but that's just what I do. <laughs> and so I parse <laughs> things together and get understanding. Like I, I whenever I say make a big generalization, people like you're making a big generalization. I'm like, I know. Yeah, I have to make certain assumptions because otherwise you don't get anywhere. And what it reminds me of, I had a joke about. Let me let me tell the joke, and then I want you to. Tell me if I'm being, if it's in any truth, but I have a postmodernism joke, which is like, let's say Derrida, just for instance, the French philosopher, he's in a car and he's speeding and a police officer pulls him over and he says, you're going 30 miles over the speed limit. Derrida would say, oh, I don't interpret it that way. <laughs> so I didn't do anything wrong, you know? And so, look, I haven't read any Derrida. I, I've read about him a lot, but I haven't actually gotten into his work. One thing that really worries me, though, is that I, I do have, uh, I did date a girl, actually, who was a postmodernist, and she's really into Foucault and really into Derrida. And I asked her, and we were, we were, we were good friends. I mean, now we're not, it didn't work out, but at the time we were good friends. And I was genuinely curious. This was like before Peterson was really attacking postmodernism. It's just something I'd heard once, and I looked it up on Wikipedia, and I was just confused. And so I asked her about it to explain Derrida or to explain postmodernism, and she said, Thomas, I can't explain it. And I was so, I'm like, but you study it. Like, you do a lot with literary theory and with post-structuralism and with Foucault. And She's all a stuff. programmer? No, no, no. She was a literature master's student and she did a lot with okay. post-structuralism and she really liked postmodernism. but she said, you would need to talk to my professor. I can't explain it. And to me, that sounds like a failure in teaching or at least the, the source material is so complex that people are then liking it because it's complex. And I... I, I'm very critical of that. I don't know, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know. It. it I, I don't know. It, it's, it's not something that I. I don't really completely have an opinion on that. Yeah. I have to know more, a little bit more about her. Yes. I, I'd be interested in hearing from more of the postmodernist types yes. mm -hmm. on issues like that. Me too. Uh, but I, you know, another thing that just makes me. I don't know. 
people have different t- interpretations of postmodernism too. So can you tell me like a little bit more about like how she said she came about being a postmodernist? Or so her it, angle is more through literature. So there's a piece she had me read that was very thought provoking, but also pissed me off because maybe I'm like a literature nerd or really like reading. But have you heard of the piece called The Death of the Author? No. Okay. So I don't know precisely how this fits into postmodernism, but I know it does somehow. Maybe post-structuralism would be a better framework. But in any case, um, basically this piece is about how authors don't matter. All that matters is the reader's interpretation. And I was really, I was personally triggered by that because I love authors. I want to be an author. But I was also telling her, I'm like, just from a very simplistic reducto, uh, you know, proposition, very reduced, um, if authors didn't exist, readers wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have any text. You have to have an author to then create something and then you can interpret it. Now, I think readers, um, especially those at a master's level, because that's her, I was aware of the audience I'm talking to. I'm not going to shit on readers, quite the contrary. We need people to criticize. We need people to really read deeply these authors and, and, and parse it together and think about it and give good criticism. That's very important. But to then remove any significance from the author himself, that's when I really was like, okay, I can kind of see why I really don't like this, but I don't know if you've heard anything like that. But... No, listen, my encounters with postmodernism come from, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, since they're so, um, in some sense, they're against self-referential subjectivity, mm. uh, you get it in music. Mm. You get it in people who will say that I mean, you, you, you'll you even get some of them who will say that art isn't really a real thing. Whoa. All there is is the worship of art. Uh, that's, that's a deep one. That's yeah. a tough one, but I would love to have a debate on that. Holy well, shit, I what mean, a statement. It def- depends on how you define art. I'm ne- right. not necessarily going to have a quarrel with that. Mm. Um, but what, I, what I'd say is this. Um, that's That comes from a broad tradition of skepticism, the comments mm. that she gave you. Yes. Now... Postmodernism uh, comes from, I think, a reaction to totalitarianism mm. that existed. That's, I mean, it's gone on for a while in various forms. It's been called postmodernism now, but I think it's a reaction to a typical thing about what kind of the Western narrative yes. of yeah. you know, very much mm. sex roles and gender roles. Yeah, yeah. They like look that. at all the problems that the Western world's done. They can look at imperialism. They could look at colonization. They can look at but it's, a, it's it, But it's not really a perspective on those things because it's relativistic. Ah. It's epistemologically and morally relativistic. So what does so that does mean? It, yeah, for listeners. It, 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 it's, it's, what does what mean? <laughs> morally relativistic. Um, yeah. It is morally relativistic. Right. I think that if you look at postmodernism and you mm. metastasize it into something that's actionable as a formula, right. uh, it's a framework for maybe no right or wrong. Yes. Maybe more of a situationally based kind yeah. of perspective of right. right and wrong. Okay. I see um, what you're saying now. Well, because the enemy to them is being seeing some kind of objective Western rationality and reason. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, very good, yeah. what's, what's the opposite to that? I mean, you're going to find some of them where they're going to be Buddhists. You're going to find <laughs> yeah. some of them. I mean, you're going to be friends with the Buddhist. You could be a, you could yeah. be a great postmodernist Christian. Mm, interesting. You, you could, you could adapt. You could, well, you could be a great one. You, You'd be a, a good, but, but you there, could there reconcile it to yeah. that mm. are, you know, 
And if you look at like a utilitarian, like let's take like a John Stuart Mill or even a Sam Harris, mm. if you look at the framework that they propose for how morality say should yes, exist, yes. it's so completely different from that. Mm. There's a very mm. uh, yes. objective set there of There is right and there is wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I totally subs- and I totally subscribe to Sam Harris's view. I mean, okay, not totally, not to a hundred percent, but I do. I think it's impossible. What he's trying to do is Ted talk about how we need to have put a, have a scientific view of morality, and there's right and wrong. And he wrote a whole book called The Moral Landscape, which I thoroughly enjoy. But I can totally see why it maybe pissed off some people, or why people were like, no, 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 this is not possible. Science does not belong in the morality domain. And fair enough, I'm not going to have a strong opinion one way or another in that. But I do think in similar ways to Sam Harris. I'd be lying if I didn't say his writing and his his speaking and his podcast did not influence the way I think. But I haven't heard him debate. Rational realist utilitarian. Yeah. He has a certain yeah. perspective. Mm-hmm. You must admit to anyone who's a millennial. <laughs> um, I haven't picked up on that, but I'm sure if I re-listened to his podcast, I would notice that. Go on. Think about the state of knowledge that we grew up in. Think mm. about the ability that we can use Wikipedia. Think yes. about the ability that we can see videos right. and of all kinds. We can watch Animal Planet for hours and learn things. This is the age of being able to learn things. True. This it's is never the been age easier. of being it's able to have a rationalist perspective mm. and seem like the most sane person in the room as a utilitarian. Okay. Um, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, I agree. So go on. Well, I just I, there's a certain clear-headedness to that that's like really really appealing. Yes. And the the fact of the matter is, if we're going to talk about it, if we're going to kind of move to Sam Harris and utilitarianism mm-hmm. and stuff like that, um, when you es- establish a collective moral framework of any sort, mm-hmm. you're going to get backlash from certain of people. Of course. And that that backlash is in no way a measure of whether or not your idea is applicable to their discipline. So, for example, mm-hmm. if Sam Harris wants to say that uh, science can tell us something about morality, it doesn't give someone like Lawrence Krauss or Neil deGrasse Tyson any special ground to say no. That's impossible. Mm-hmm. You're wrong. You they're not going to fight him on that. Yeah, they're not. That's they don't. And, well, no, some of them did. I mean, lots of people oh. do fight him. But on I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson though, and Lawrence Lawrence Krauss. Oh, no, I'm I'm not I'm not being literally them. But, you know, I think what is important is the the, the distinction between rationality and science is something we should continue to keep exploring. Mm -hmm. Because, first of all, as the state of science changes, it's undeniable that as science has changed, morality has changed. And there is Mm -hmm. some type of correlational or maybe even causal error. Yeah, sure. I would love to investigate. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you can you can really generalize about the two. But as the state of technology has improved, yes. As the state of doing science has improved, human well-being has improved. Mm. What is the mechanism behind both of those two things? Is that mechanism related to the execution of both of those things? If so, how? That's a very reasonable question to ask. and it is certainly reasonable to assert that there are certain principles about the Enlightenment and just the fact that we can even have – have you ever read any Peter Singer? I have, yes. Okay. Just the fact that a guy like him can come around and convince a couple people that maybe he's right tells us something new about the human ethical paradigm. Yes. Something has changed. Right. So, so I, yeah. I don't like separating the issues mm. in terms of can science tell us something specific about morality? I think it's right. more interesting to ask, what are the ways in which science and morality are intertwined, and can we expose them for a better understanding of both? Mm. And here's one thing I was going to bring up to yeah, you. Yeah, please, um, please do. I'm glad we got to this. Yes. Um, and it's this kind of notion that 
there's this very infinite universe to expand to kind of kind of explore with um, you know all of our modern techniques and that universe is massively expansive obviously but all that an expansive universe actually means is expansive human experience mm. an infinite universe implies infinite possible human experience Absolutely. implies yeah. infinite sentient being experience yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sure. that's why science and religion in some ways are tied mm. for all of eternity um, <laughs> and you yeah. could you could think of uh, one way to think about it is science and religion as having this failed courtship. Yes, because I mean you can look at even like Galileo was mm. sanctioned by his. I mean there, mm. there's all kinds of examples of the church really trying to harbor in science and rein science in. Of course, bring it under. It's the a banner. threat. So the repercussion of that bad breakup and mm. that bad breakup started. I'm gonna say right around Copernicus. Yeah. But, right, saying that uh, we're mean, not I the center that, of the universe. That's a big one yeah. to uh, which, dismantle. Which, 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 I mean, and then Newton is an interesting one because he was a religious man, but he was yeah. a psychopath, so I don't really Well, care what, I, what I like to say about Isaac Newton real quick is that I studied him a lot. He spent more time trying to turn lead into gold than inventing calculus. And he spent more time trying to determine when, when Jesus would return to Earth than he did on the laws of physics. So he was, I know. That's why I'm saying he's a psych, he was a psychopath. <laughs> well, I don't I know if he was that, a psychopath, but he was very ill. He was he had a lot of mental problems. Psychopath could have been one of them. He did not have a healthy life. We can say that at least. But from what I've studied of him, it's interesting because on one hand, scientists are going to say like, oh, he was one of the one of the not the greatest scientists who ever lived, but imagine what more he could have accomplished if he wasn't spending so much time in alchemy and trying Jesus oh, yeah. to return. Well, but then, I don't know. Yeah. There was nothing more to accomplish at that time. Mm. He gave us, yeah. he, I don't know what further he could have done. Right. But it's an unknown. My, yeah. My, my point here is uh, that science, the relationship between science and religion can be viewed through the lens of potential human experience of the universe. Mm -hmm. They are, I mean, I don't even want to say religion there. I want to say morality. Yeah. Um, I want to say that those two are tied up in a way that makes a total divorce in some ways completely impossible. As the as our understanding of the universe expands, yes. our potential experiences expand. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think it's important to be conscious of that. I don't like how many people go about moral truths outside, honestly, of most... Just it, it is very hard to get a stable moral framework from sure. Like or Wait, what are you saying? That you really can you hear me? Oh no, sorry, I interrupted slightly. What was your question? I was asking you if you had a moral framework which you feel really comfortable with, or. I don't know if I would say comfortable, but there is one I've been playing with quite a lot. And it's kind of funny because uh, the T-shirt I'm wearing right now, I'll just move the camera down. I don't know if you can read this. But um, effective altruism was largely based on the morality philosophy of Peter Singer. I wouldn't say he's the leader of the movement, but he certainly had an influence. Um, there's a lot of debate within the effective altruism community. So... Um, I don't know if anyone's gone about saying, okay, this is our moral framework, but it does certainly have a utilitarianism uh, bent to it. That's undeniable. The degree to which varies within effective altruism. I'm trying to, I'm working in community building within the Netherlands group, which is really nice. The Netherlands are like super nice guys. I think they're much more balanced and have a good work-life balance compared to effective altruism in America, for instance. Usually the, pro the biggest problem with effective altruism and the utilitarian philosophy they carry is that 
they come from two narrow of backgrounds. So most of them are interested in artificial intelligence and programming and philosophy and in economics. But we're missing out on artists, we're missing out on people from the humanities. For the most part, we're missing out on a diversity of people. I mean, right, it is a lot of straight white men. And usually I get annoyed when people say that, but it's like, it's true. If you're a woman, and especially if you're a woman of color and you went to one of our meetups, you'd probably feel alienated because you walk in and it's a bunch of nerdy white dudes and that's just uncomfortable. And I want to change that. Not just for the sake of having diversity, but for the sake of just having different ideas. Because at the very root of it, it's a philosophy and we, we debate Definitely. each other constantly. So to answer your question though, um, we, we, I was having a very long talk with this with two artificial intelligence philosophy guys last night or two nights ago. I was at an AI safety dinner and we, I was trying to sell them on effective altruism, but they would ask me pretty good cri critiques, right? And, or trepidations they have. And it's like the underlying philosophy is like, it's possible to do the most good. So when you do moral things, when you do altruistic things specifically, there are better altruistic things than others. You can kind of quantify it to an extent, and that's where people get uncomfortable. So charity is the most obvious example. Some charities are much more effective on a certain metrics than others, right? So we have economists, PhD economists from good institutions at the GiveWell organization that's tied with effective altruism, and what they do is they say, look, there's so many charities, right? They're donating aid to, to Africa and various causes. But so few of them are very transparent in what, what they do with that money. And so few of them take a rigorous evidence-based approach to when they're giving money and identifying solutions. And so few of them are critical of themselves. They, they think, well, we're doing a good thing, right? Morally, we're helping others, but they fail to consider how, to, if they're, how effective they're being. So that's where effective altruism comes in. And so if you look at an organization like Against Malaria Foundation, to name one, this one's really heavily endorsed by the effective action community. So much so that the co-founder of Facebook, Dustin, I forget his name, he's worth about $10 billion, I believe. I forget his exact amount. He just came out and said he's going to put all his money into effective altruism, which is a really big deal, right? This is now we're in the big leagues, right? This is $10 million within his lifetime and his wife's lifetime. So I see that as very exciting. I could see how some people would be upset by that. It's like really 10 billion to one organization. But the thing is, is that effective altruism, it's not just a nonprofit. It's not just an organization. It's a global network of Oxford, Harvard, MIT, whatever, scientists throughout. And now it's expanding to more people. I would say there's 1,500 hardcore members in it who have pledged to give 10% of their future income to what they see as effective charity. So the reason why I'm so involved is that like I'm realizing how much power and influence and money they're quickly getting and that it's very important that I instill a certain ethics and that I communicate with leaders in the movement and make sure they don't get carried away, you know? So it's very interesting. But if you have any questions about effective altruism, let me know. Uh, I am becoming more and more informed but still don't know some things but, and critical of some things. Yeah, um, but it's a big deal. so I, uh, my perspective of coming at this is, um, I, I generally give to people that I see. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's, that's so real. Peter Singer, yeah. so Peter Singer, uh, would have a thing or two to say to me. Of course, of course, he's extreme. Um, he's definitely I also, extreme. I also make sure I don't buy any really expensive suits. Nice. Well, that's so good. I don't, I'm worry, in favor of that, so I don't have personal. to worry about jumping in the water to save that baby and ah. suit. Um, yeah. I'm glad you're well versed but, uh, with him at least. Yeah, that's good. what I'm glad at least you're well versed with Peter Singer, so you know something. Yeah, you know he's um he totally 
he totally compelled maybe more people than almost any philosopher yeah, in the last he 50 spoke to years. The heart. Yeah. He made more people vegetarians. I mean, like, I meet these, like, I'm not trying to be mean, but I meet some really, really airheaded yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Sure. Some really not all that bright, all their people. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Which is like, Singer. oh, Peter Singer. I love <laughs> Peter Singer. I'm like, okay, so you're a vegetarian, right? You're trying to be skinny bitch, right? Sorry. <laughs> that's like. <laughs> I have my own like, beef, by the way, with vegetarian. There is a part of effective altruism that's big on animal welfare and they require veganism, but I'm not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian, just for the record. Well, I think that. Uh, I, I think that altruism, I, I don't know enough, but yeah. I think it's, that it's altruism is in its pure form kind of transactional. It's mm. one thing that I noticed about it. I've heard people interviewed um, on several occasions, some disciples of Peter Singer who are committing to give away everything they make down to like 22K a year yeah, for themselves. Yeah, those are the hardcore effective altruists that exist, yeah. I think that if you get to the point where you are a utilitarian of that sort, I don't see what the other choice would be. Yes. You'd have to give away everything that you possibly could. But I, That's you know, how some think, of, yeah, as they say the extreme. One of the, one of the places where this is a really interesting environment is I think that if all of that is true, which I think some of it is true, mm-hmm. it says something about money and well-being that is extremely interesting. Yeah, go on. And not just interesting because it doesn't just tell us something about what well-being is compared to how much money we make. Mm-hmm. What it also says is something about the political ideologies that are based on in redistribution. Right. What it says – I mean if you're a socialist, for example, or a communist and you really believe that wealth really needs to be re- redistributed, you really believe that human happiness is defined by how much money you make. Right. And that is a disastrous proposition. Yeah. It is disastrous to tell people who are already not making a very, you know, great amount of money in their lives. It is disastrous to tell them that they would be way happier if they made double that amount. Mm. That is just like the mm. opposite of what I want to tell human beings in America. Of course. Um, it's the most if you make $55,000 or more a year in America, you're in the top 1% of the planet. Yep. Yeah. Even less now than that. that think, is, yeah. if, if you think about that. Mm, as, I do a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's insane when you think about it because it we still have people in this country who make that or above who think that their standard of life is very low. Right. So this is, okay, this is a psychological domain. I know a lot about it. Something I want to just add that I think you'd find really interesting. So there's some behavioral economists. I've done some work in behavior economics, really like at human irrationality, and they've studied money and happiness. And they found something really interesting when they quantify it. I don't know how peer-reviewed this is, but it is thought-provoking. Once people get to 70K a year on average, they stop getting more happy as they get more income. There's something about the 70K limit that you can you can travel for a few weeks during the year. You can kind of, you know, you can be happy. You, you, I mean, in the sense that you don't want more. But then there's this contradictory thing. This is where our brain is so complex, where everyone wants twice as much as what they have. <laughs> so if you have make 50K a year, oh, if you had 100K a year, think about what you could do. You get that nicer car. You can go on more vacations. You don't have to, you can splurge on dinner without worrying, right? But then it's like, well, what if you have 100,000? Well, imagine if I had 200,000, I could get a better car, better home, right? And so on and so forth. Even when you're at a billion, people want more. There's no limit to human greed at any level. Now, that doesn't apply to everyone. There's exceptions. I hope I'm an exception. But it's true, though. There is this appeal where 
no matter what, if you look at the richest people, there's they could always have a bigger house. They could always have there's always the next thing. In the future, it's going to be oh, I want a home at Mars, or I want to you know I want to go on a space flight into outer space. I want to take the Virgin shuttle into outer space. That's what the wealthiest people will be doing next in the future. But or taking the Bezos whatever Blue Origin you know rocket, or take the Musk to, uh, SpaceX rocket. But there's no shortage to that, you know. And so what I personally want to dedicate my life to doing, and and, and hopefully through this podcast and other means and in person is to instill meaning into people to say like okay yeah you know money there is a relationship to happiness to a certain degree you know i'm not going to tell somebody who's really poor that money doesn't buy happiness i think that's a really kind of cruel thing to say they would definitely benefit from more money but what i would say is there's also a lot of super wealthy people who have their entire identity built on that wealth and that if you take away any of that their entire being collapses. And to have an extreme example, and in Tony Robbins' book, I read about money. My dad was offended when I was reading it because he's like a doctor. And I can always like, how can you read a book on money? I'm like, dad, you complain about money constantly. I think if you read it, <laughs> you know, you'd be making more. But the bottom line is this. There's a guy who's worth $10 billion. And in the Great Recession, he lost 90% of his wealth. But he's still at a billion, right? So most people, they hear that story and they're like, oh, what this poor billionaire only has $1 billion. What a poor guy. Oh, my God. He committed suicide. He jumped in front of a train and killed himself. Yeah. His entire idea. Imagine, though, if you invested all your time into a book and then somebody just ripped it off or it just it deleted. So, like, all your identity was on a book and then you lost 90%. That would be devastating. I think that's what happens to him psychologically with the money. He lives and breathes money, 100 hour a week. This is all he does. And then he loses 90% and he forgets about, he had kids, by the way. He forgets about his kids. Forgets, it's tragic to the most extreme. Forgets about his wife. is so overwhelmed by that loss. His brain can't handle it. Kills himself. So that's extreme, but it's an example. I think that's not exactly exclusive to money. I actually mm. have no, I don't kind think so of either. a similar theory about climate change. Oh, okay, uh, go ahead. Yes. I think I think <laughs> if it can be shown that climate change is a hoax for any reason, and I'm not saying that yeah, that is yeah. the case. It's just a there are millions of people who millions of people whose lives are <laughs> for purpose. Oh my god, you're so right. <laughs> This is so true. They're so, so it's invested. Like, it's like people invest a lot of their time in either everything. knowledge they invest or money everything. or beliefs. And it's just not – if you become too invested in any of that, any identity. it's yeah. likely to be devastating. I but agree. This goes to an epistemological notion though, okay. and almost like a Buddhist kind of notion of yeah. attachment and stuff like that. Right. I mean it's, it's the degree to which you're attached to the things you know, the money you have – the things you want to be true, if you're mm. so significantly attached to those things, yeah, I mean, I, I can't get in the mind of that guy who killed himself. But, no, you know, neither can I. Uh, I can never be uh, in the mind I, of I, like, The best I can say is that he was too attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one explanation. I mean, that's true. Uh, I, yeah, I have no idea what was going on in his head. I was actually pretty shocked by that story. I don't think many people know about that story. Or, yeah, I'm going to check that out. Yeah, no, please do fact check it. I'm just, that's just from a book I read, but yeah. All right. Um, but I think, you know, it's easy to be unsympathetic though, to people who are very wealthy. It's easy to be unsympathetic to people who are very powerful. Uh, this kind of goes back to the whole oppressor oppressed dichotomy that I really hate because I just think it's too overly simplistic. Um, but I'm trying to find a way to tie this all together. I do have a party I have to go to in like 15 minutes, but I'm trying to, you know, we've talked about so many things. It's like seven eighteen PM. 
Um, okay. It's just a housewarming party. I'm not in a rush or anything. I just know for our listeners, like, because it's been like over two hours of conversation. So I'm trying to see though a good way to to conclude everything we talked about. I think we've talked about so many fantastic things, but maybe if you have like a message to our listeners, I don't know. They they've just been kind of bringing in a lot, and we've talked about so many topics. But it seems like both music and philosophy have had a huge influence on your worldview and framework but also maybe to tie back into what we mentioned about identity um if any message you have with our listeners of a way for them to be healthier just a different mindset maybe i don't know um i guess i would just say for me uh the thing that i think is most helpful to human happiness is examining that you are you know, a thinking thing and that you are not exactly the same as the things that you think. Mm. Um, and if you can minimize the amount of negative input that comes from things like that are more modern to us, like social media, and, you know, all of the, if you can minimize the amount of stress you get from our modern world, that's a good first step in becoming happy. Mm. Then the other thing is dealing with the things in your life that will always just be the case, your, your family, um, what your strengths and weaknesses are. Mm. Um, coming to terms with those things often requires that you accept some things and that you change other things. Right. And uh, the first step in that change, I think, for a lot of people is acknowledging that it is possible to become more knowledgeable, acknowledging that it is possible to become more skilled, more mm. healthy, um, and that it's not just the people that you see who are excelling at things like music or athletics or things like that that are capable of these things it is everyone who is capable of becoming you know somewhat greater than they not feeling um that you're doomed to become your parents or you're doomed mm -hmm. to become yeah. you know whoever it is you end up with i think that that's an important message for people to have yeah okay all that so incredible just to add a little bit i would just say um yeah, you are not your thoughts. Um, like that's what I think you're getting at. My my second guest I had on here was this brilliant uh, philosopher and uh, journalist friend of mine who's in um, Bali right now and in India. And he's like he's the nicest dude I know, the wisest person I know. And uh, I think I had him in my second episode, so it was like it was kind of long, like this one. Maybe that's just talking to philosophers. But he had, you know, he he was really big on that. When I asked him what are you grateful for, he said that I'm not my thoughts that I can just kind of separate myself from that. I mean, it's a very like advanced mindfulness, uh, realization. That thing, that thing comes only, you can't really understand the significance of that statement until you've done some like Cartesian type doubt, which is like, you have to be able to be an observer of your own thoughts. That's yes. different than just being an observer. You observe True. that you are a thinking thing. You are a thing that thinks, that's what I think meditation is for. It's for you to realize a certain selflessness to the thoughts themselves while realizing that the self resides in the thinking. Mm. Like, yeah, no, it's really profound. And I think sometimes when people hear that, like maybe they do like a heuristic, they do a shortcut and they get kind of confused, you know, or they don't want to deeply think about it. So to it's put work. It, yeah, it's work. It's work. But to put it in more concrete terms, this is something I discovered, I think, three years ago. It put me on my path to do in the future, a PhD in neuroeconomics and really study neuroscience in the brain. So there's a science writer called Stephen Kotler, and he has a video, and I'll, I'll, I'll post a link to it under this, but it's my favorite video of all time on YouTube, and I watch a lot of videos. It's called Slow Your Brain Down to Get More Done. And what he does is he explains the neuroscience behind flow, and when you meditate and when you separate yourself, and he 
said that neuroscientists studied mountain climbers, they studied professional surfers, they studied um, jazz musicians when they improvised, they studied Tibetan monks, and they found all of them had something in common when they're in this flow state and they their self dissolves. So when a mountain climber says he feels one with a mountain, when a surfer says he feels one with the wave, when a musician says he feels one with the music, when he's when a Tibetan monk says he feels one with the universe itself, the part of your brain, a part of the prefrontal cortex where your morality comes from, where your sense of self comes from, where your thinking, that voice in your head comes from, it's what makes us human. It temporarily shuts down. They have a scientific term for this called temporal hypofrontality, which means the front part of your brain for a temporary period of time is slowed down. Send me a link to this. I will. No, and I will to this podcast so our listeners can listen to it. But it's really interesting. And I have looked into the research. Like, it is valid. They need to do more. But, and I want to study it. But I then, know all that stuff's true. I just didn't yes, know Yes, but now true. we're getting to actual scientific evidence. This is why neuroscience is so exciting. They, they're finding so many interesting things. So it's like, of course it's a Ben Monk says he feels one through the universe because it's impossible for his brain to differentiate. And I think that's where you can get peace. And that's where you can get compassion. You can get love from is by having this part of our brain, which we evolved, which no other species on animal of animal has. It's what makes us unique. By just shutting that down temporarily, you can get so much done and you can be so connected effortlessly right you're not even have to think you're not thinking um well can, can i give you my perspective on that please actually have, please do please do well and i know you, you only got a little bit of time it's okay. here no, um, take your time just uh so here's the thing with oneness with yes. the universe and i've spent a lot of time thinking about this um we should not acknowledge necessarily the same type of oneness of the human mind or soul to the universe as we would acknowledge that um, a, a, a paper, one page is part of a book. That's not the kind of oneness that I mean when I talk about. What do you mean? What I mean is that since we have the – first of all, since we have the experience of the universe, we are distinct from the universe. For example, like we couldn't be seeing the universe as in front of us and being a phenomena if we were the same thing as it. We are not literally the same thing as the universe. I think the universe and humans are kindred. It's like saying I'm with my friend. It's like saying that uh, I'm with someone that shares a lot of my interests. It is that we are the same and that mm. we – so we consider this to be a type of oneness. Yeah. I think the oneness with the universe that kind of exists – as feeling some kind of non-discrimination between yourself and the forces of the universe is a little bit too funky for me. And maybe mm -hmm. I need to, I need to delve a little bit more into it, yeah, but that fine. experience that you talked about yeah. in the prefrontal cortex yeah. is completely, completely vibes with what I just said. Oh, of course. Uh, it be either explanation. And anyone can experience flow. I would argue anyone has experienced flow. When you are with your partner for the first time and you click and you're at a cafe or at a park. I think actually Einstein had a good quote on this. What is relativity? Relativity is how if you put your finger on a stove, um, um what is it, right? The, the, uh, fuck, I'm for struggling. For one minute, for yes. one minute, you're going to have a horrible, ex uh, I forgot the idea. Uh, a minute, a sec, uh, yeah, a minute passes like an hour. But if you're sitting next to a beautiful girl that you love, who you met for the first time at a park, an hour right, passes in right. a minute. So, Right. Relativity. Another cool aspect of temporal hypofrontality is that time is 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 fuzzy. It's like and it's so true. So if you've ever 
had the opposite of writer's block. So you're just writing and you're just in a flow state or you are playing a, an instrument. You forget about time. You forget about space. Like, and this isn't just this woo spiritual thing. No, now we're getting hard science. It's like, no, no, no. Your brain is so different during these states. And, and we can, we can pinpoint it. The other weird thing to add to it is that it's the same thing that happens to people who have mental illness, certain mental illnesses. So in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, which I have, you have something more severe than transient hypofrontality. You have something called hypofrontality. And this is quite extensive in the psychological scientific literature. And it's a problem to actually be in this state of mind for too long. So for instance, for me with mania, like it's an amazing feeling, at least hypomania, uh, a, a more mild version of it. But in pure mania, the, I always say the problem is, is that there's no off switch, right? I never want to go to bed. I stayed awake for 65 hours straight once because I was always in flow, always feeling good. This is a problem, right? But it, it, I, was, I was pushing my brain, but my brain was saying, look, you don't need to give me stimulants. You don't need to give me coffee. I don't need five-hour energy. I'm awake. Like imagine feeling awake at your best for 65 hours. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> there are problems to this. I think there's a dark side to everything, but my bottom line is to the listeners is I would say cultivate more flow into your life. So cultivate, you can do this by walking in nature, meditating, music, talking to people one-on-one -on -one like we've been doing. All these can instigate flow. Um, I'm sure you experience a lot of flow when you're in the woods. I mean, nature only adds to it. Uh, it's. I really want to study this in more depth, but I thought oh my God, I got to mention this, you know. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah. So anyways, I think we'll end it there. Um, to anyone listening, if you've listened all the way this much, I hope that was rewarding to hear. And uh, I highly recommend going into the woods like Zeke does. And I highly recommend checking out his album on Spotify. What, what's the title of the album again? Animals of God and War. Yes, that's a hard name to forget. <laughs> it really covers a lot. And it's really good if you like piano, if you like guitar, if you like music. I mean, it, there's a lot in there. Um, I really enjoyed it. So anyway, Zeke, thank you for coming at the roundtable. Yeah. See you later, Thomas. Great. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of the Roundtable Chats podcast. Um, I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Um, I really did not know what to expect. Zeke and I had never spoken in person before this interview, so it was quite extraordinary how much chemistry we had. Uh, I just wanted to apologize for how fast and how much I talked this interview. Usually I listen more. I think I had a cup of coffee before the episode, so that might be why. Anyways, life's a work in progress, um, but I really, I mean, just listening to this, it's like he's really gifted at music and it inspires me honestly so anyways if you're listening to me right now go outside go into nature practice waking up early be compassionate call your parents call your loved ones life is short and if there's any project you want to do um just do it just start just life is short and anyways that's it see you next time <laughs>